Welcome to the second part of episode nine. Like we mentioned at the end of the previous episode, we covered our two slasher movies in part one, so now we're covering our pair of body snatcher-esque movies, Disturbing Behavior and The Faculty. If your pod platform put this episode on first, then you can stop and check out part one if you'd like, where we review I Know What You Did Last Summer and Urban Legend. So with that said, here's part two. All right, so that brings us to Disturbing Behavior from 1998. Now, I know what you did last summer. I saw it as soon as it hit video. Urban Legend, I hadn't seen at all. Disturbing Behavior, I just saw for the first time like six, seven years ago. And I saw it for kind of a left field reason. I saw it because of Game of Thrones. In the early seasons of Game of Thrones, I was you know, really big into every bit of news I could get about it, about you know who'd been cast, who was doing what. I would always watch for the announcements about who the directors were going to be for the next season. And then this one season, there was a lot of hoopla because they had brought in this director named David Nutter. And I said, cool. Well, what has he done? Looked him up. And David Nutter has a big reputation in the television industry because he's kind of known as the pilot whisperer, where he has done 20 pilots and 19 of them have gone to series. Oh, wow. Yeah. He did the pilot for Space Above and Beyond, Millennium, Sleepwalkers, Roswell, Dark Angel, Smallville, Without a Trace, Dr. Vegas, Tarzan, Jack and Bobby, Supernatural, Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, Arrow, The Flash, shitload of stuff. I've seen a fair number of those. (laughs) And he has a connection to our previous episode. So in episode eight, Jacob broached the X-Files episode of Ice, which was the homage to The Thing, which was the first episode of X-Files that David Nutter directed. Nice. And there is a lot of X-Files bleed over in this movie, which we'll probably get to in a bit. But in researching David Nutter and said, all right, who is this guy? And one of the things that came up was that he had directed this feature film called Disturbing Behavior, which somehow I missed this completely when it first came out. I didn't remember this at all, and I don't remember any of my friends seeing it or talking about it. So this was completely new to me. So I rented this from Netflix on DVD and just watched it leading into whatever season David Nutter was debuting on A Game of Thrones. So really left field into this movie for me, but that was what prompted me to check it out. I remember seeing it I think, in theaters, actually, back when it came out. I was in college. Back in those days, I went out my way to see a lot more theater films, just because I could. <laughs> I didn't see it in theaters, but I had seen it. I was aware of it largely in relation to the song that was in the trailer, which is Flagpole Set of by Harvey Danger. I remember when that song came out, I was a big fan of it. In fact, I remember... The summer it came out of vacation up in Cape Cod at my brother's place and it just being on the radio all the time and just enjoying it every time it came on. And my mom happened to be with us that vacation and she more than once heard this song while we were driving around in the car and every single time complained about the all around the world only stupid people are breeding line. <laughs> but I was I was a big fan of the song and I hadn't seen the movie. I saw the movie a few years later. I didn't want out of my way to go see horror movies in the theaters for well really till i start hanging out with youtube doofuses welcome to our world (laughs) (laughs) but that said i you know i was aware of the movie i knew what it was it flopped if i recall budget was 15 million it brought in 17.5 so yeah made a profit (laughs) well assuming uh, marketing budget uh, uh, might have been a loss but it probably broke even on rental i'm guessing at the very least but no, theatrically yeah not a big profit you could kind of make the case that it killed the 90s teen horror trend dead but that's a bit of a stretch but it felt like the last like a bunch of these came out at sort of around the same time and some of them lost franchises and some of them didn't and this was a big 
big in the didn't category. And coming into this later, looking it up for the first time, one of the other things that excited me was the other members of the crew. So there's the X-Files connection with David Nutter doing a bunch of X-Files episodes. He brought the DP from X-Files, John S. Bartley, who was the DP on Ice. Mark Snow, the composer for X-Files, did the music for this. So there's a big connection there. But the writer on this was Scott Rosenberg. And that's when I got real excited because Scott Rosenberg, before this, had written Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, Beautiful Girls, and Con Fucking Air. (laughs) So I was really excited to write Disturbing Behavior when I saw Scott Rosenberg wrote it and wrote it at a time when he was probably at his hottest because going into this, he wrote High Fidelity not long after this. And then we entered into the imposter kangaroo jack sequence of his career. But at at this point, he was super hot. Did you catch the Beautiful Girls reference in the film? It's been so long since I've seen Beautiful Girls, I didn't. So the team, the football team is playing in the beginning. There's a poster for is Knightsbridge. Knightsbridge is the town that Beautiful Girls takes place in. Oh, Nice. nice. Now, what's funny about that is this takes place in Oregon, whereas Knightsbridge is never said, but it's very heavily implied that Knightsbridge in Beautiful Girls is somewhere in Massachusetts. So Beautiful Girls is one of my all-time favorite movies. I recognize it's problematic in so many ways, but I saw it at just the right time that a lot of it has stuck with me. Not the misogyny, but everything else. (laughs) So I was excited, again, to find out that this was written by Scott Rosenberg and that it had that Beautiful Girls connection to it. That made me happy. I already liked this movie, so... Yeah, there's a couple other Scott Rosenberg connections, like the production designer on this is Nelson Coates, who was the production designer on the Stand miniseries, so you guys are probably excited about that. But he worked on other Scott Rosenberg collaborations with Gary Fleeter, like Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, Imposter, Runaway Jury, etc. But the main thing I wanted to mention is in terms of the X-Files connections, so I did an IMDb collaboration search for X-Files and Disturbing Behavior and said, all right, how many matches are there? 66 matches between X-Files and this. Now, to be fair, like two thirds of that at least are actors because X-Files went on for so long and was a genre project that so many people up and down the cast of this showed up in X-Files at some point, not necessarily a David Nutter episode, but still 66 matches. Wow. It's in large part because this was shot in Vancouver. And David Nutter went out of his way to hire all his pals from X-Files. Like he talks about it on a lot. If you watch the director's commentary in between him complaining about how badly they mangled his movie, it's him pointing out all his buddies. Oh, they were on X-Files. They were on X-Files. They were on (laughs) X-Files. We shot this where we shot, you know, like even the people who weren't on X-Files are related to X-Files. Like the doctor's daughter in this is the actual real life daughter of the actor who played Froicky on the X-Files. So, you know, or in The Lone Gunman. So even not the direct X-Files, there's a second generation connection to X-Files in this film. Now, you saw the deleted scenes for this, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. We're going to do something interesting with this. So this is the one movie we're doing tonight that I read the script for. So this was a draft of the script from August of 1997. My intent going into this, I was like, all right, I know I've seen the alternate ending, but I was like, let me skip the deleted scenes and I'll just read the script and then I'll talk with Jake and Nick and we'll kind of compare and see like, you know, what stuff they bring up that was deleted scenes, what stuff was in the script and what stuff wasn't. We'll do it that way. And then in going through the script, once I got about a third of the way in, it diverged so significantly 
that I had to just up and watch the deleted scenes because I said, there's, (laughs) there's no way. And sure enough, there's a lot of shit in the script. That's not even in the deleted scenes. The script for this is 120 pages. If you equate one page of a script to every minute of screen time, that would have made for a two hour film. Whereas the actual runtime is like an hour 25, something like that with credits. Yeah, they cut a lot. 82 minutes. Although the version that David Nutter turned in had almost an additional half hour. And he is hot about it getting cut. In fact, I have a fairly lengthy quote that kind of talks about that. And let me read that before we get into the thing. Okay, so this is from the website Real Talk interview with a guy named Gaius Balling. I'm probably butchering that name. I apologize, Mr. Balling. Bowling. So, like I said, this is a little bit long, but it's worth it because it gives an interesting background. David Nutter is pretty upset about this film, and there's different cuts of it. Like, if you happen to catch this on basic cable, it'll be a different cut than the one that's streaming and on the DVDs. It's a 100-minute cut versus an 82-minute cut. So there's stuff that's put back into it, but you can't stream that. And there's people who have put the deleted scenes in re- like fan edits huh. that are supposed to be better, but I couldn't find any of them. It's real interesting because it's the actual 82-minute cut of this makes not a lot of sense if you, you watch anything. It's still a fun movie, I thought. It's not great, but it's fun. But once you see the deleted scenes, I'm like, this makes a lot more sense <laughs> with some of this in because it redevelops the characters a little bit. And there's a couple of lines in one scene in particular that implies a larger thing going on. But anyway, let me read this. Again, this is from Real Talk. After the cut was delivered, the film had its first test screening on May 15, 1998 in Plano, Texas. 324 audience members filled the theater with people ranging from ages 15 to 24, the target audience for the film. Apparently, they responded fairly well to the film, but Nathanson was worried that the few who had complaints about aspects of the film which included criticism about too much character building in the film's ending in which Gavin dies. Spoilers. (laughs) After this screening, Nutter was ordered to cut the film down to 95 minutes, and he did this despite having objections. Two weeks later, the film had a second test screening in Westlake Village, which also went well, but at this point, MGM had complete control of the film and ordered him to shoot a new ending where Gavin is alive and a teacher under the control of the Blue Ribbons. The movie was also recut, with the help of MGM's VP of production editing George Folsey Jr. The scenes he cut or deleted completely were Steve's flashbacks about his dead brother, more exposition and character scenes, and scenes between the teens and their parents were also cut because MGM ordered that most of the scenes with adults be cut because it wasn't interested to the targeted audience. In June 1998, the film had two more test screenings in San Diego, and the response was more varied this time. There was a lot of complaints about Gavin being alive in the new ending, which is something MGM pushed for. David Nutter almost wanted his name removed from the film at this point because all of these cuts created a film he didn't intend to make. There was a fourth test screening where MGM had the film cut down to 72 minutes. And after the screening, someone from MGM proudly said, well, we didn't have any walkouts, to which David Nutter replied, who had time to walk out? (laughs) <laughs> I can understand his anger. His 115-minute cut was now shaved to a mere hour and 12 minutes. The film had a fifth test screening 11 days before its release, where scenes were added back in to create the 83-minute final cut that audiences got, and reportedly the screen was well-received, and MGM seemed proud of the numerous cuts and edits they made. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so some serious butchering going on that's here. about the film here's a direct quote and this is from a director's guild interview the interview is actually about pilots it's not about the movie 
The question was, I've talked to enough directors to know that not every writer is receptive to those suggestions. David Nutter answers, that's very true. I've had meetings with people where I've said, I don't want to be involved in that. I thrive best when I'm in a positive situation. That's the most important thing. I did a movie several years ago, Disturbing Behavior, that was a terrible experience for me because it was just like they wanted the young X-Files director to go do an X-Files for teenagers. And I said, okay, let's do it. And then basically there was just a year and a half of writers, producers in the studio. It was the worst experience I have ever had in my life. Which given the amount of shows he's worked on, it's fucking impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things he says on the commentary is he wanted to make a teen movie that wouldn't let teens down. And I believe him. And I think the studio wanted to make a movie that had something else entirely. But it's funny that when you you see all that and you still watch the movie, it's not that bad in terms of logical inconsistencies, things like that. I enjoy it. Yeah. Makes you wonder how much more you get out of it if you had the whole thing. I did a bunch of searching around for the director's cut or at least one of these fan edits to kind of watch it as it was or as it was more closely to intended to be. Because if you watch, again, if you watch the deleted scenes, there really is a lot more character stuff, but there's also more plot stuff. Past motivations, yeah. The middle of this movie was absolutely gutted. Yep. Yeah, there's a scene with William Sadler where William Sadler explains, it's not a bunch of exposition, you know, this is giving everything away. He just explains what's going on to the point where it makes sense so that the movie makes sense. Yeah. Whereas before, it's just like, this is what's happening. (laughs) Yeah. It's very much like the previous two movies we talked about in that it doesn't hold up to scrutiny because so little of it makes sense. But when you watch it with the deleted scenes or you see some of this extra stuff, it holds up better. It makes more sense. It flows better. There's more logic to the scenes and some of the cuts. And again, despite all that, I still like the movie. I like it a lot. Yeah. I'm not crazy about it, but um, <laughs> for a couple reasons, and so I'll, I'll get into that at the end. Part of that, I think, funnily enough, ties into what you just mentioned about David Nutter not wanting to let teens down, where I think he went a little too far in the wrong direction with that. But before we get into that, I'm going to try and keep the script stuff really broad because there's so much. It's not radically different in terms of its completely different plot wise, but there's just so many side bits and bits that were shifted around that it would take a while to go over. But I'll drop in a couple bits as we go through and then I'll talk about some stuff at the end. But one thing I thought was interesting about the script. So one thing we're almost assuredly going to talk about during this movie, like we talked about with the other movies, is the soundtrack. And one thing that's interesting is the script specifies songs at multiple points. Oh, wow. Really? And we'll get into some of them as we go through. To my knowledge, none of them line up with the actual soundtrack, because I'm sure it was a case of Scott Rosenberg saying, this is what I'd want. And then the studio saying, well, this is what we think is hip. So this is what goes in. But the script actually opens with two quotes, one of which being Robert Louis Stevenson with the quote, youth is wholly experimental. And then the other one is Slayer, Ah! which is... Forgotten children can form a new faith, avidity and lust controlled by hate, never-ending search for your shattered sanity, souls of damnation in their own reality. Hot. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And one bit I can confirm that does match is there's a sequence in the cafeteria where Gavin and UV quote Metallica. That bit is in the script verbatim. Nice. I like it. (laughs) That's when they quote Harvester of Sorrow. Yeah. For me, again, the big song from this is Flagpole Sitta by Harvey Danger, which, again, is not on the soundtrack. 
I actually reached out to the lead singer of Harvey Danger on Twitter to see if I could get any kind of idea why it wasn't on the soundtrack, and he never got back to me. But I did find out there are people who like any tweet that mentions disturbing behavior. Yep. So yep. I'm excited to do social media for this. It seems like we're guaranteed a few clicks. <laughs> now, that is the Paranoia Paranoia song, correct? Yes. Yes. Which is, funnily enough, is one of the songs I absolutely hate its placement in the movie. <laughs> Nothing against the song, but where it's used, it seems so jarringly out of place. It is a bit off. It's almost my favorite scene in the movie is when that song plays. <laughs> but that just, look, I, I have a deep and abiding passion for that song. So I, I, my only problem with its placement in this is that it doesn't play longer. From beginning to end. Yeah. <laughs> it plays when they're running through a mental asylum. So who doesn't want to hear fingertips and memories? I can't, you know, curvy your body while you're running through all these, <laughs> this asylum. In principle, I agree. But in execution, just given the way things build and the way the rest of the movie is leading up to it, it's a little off for me. But we'll get to that. And um, that's perfectly fine. This is going to be another case of me liking a song. It makes me more forgiving of whatever else like we talked about in I Know What You Did Last Summer. It's like, yeah, not a great movie. Boston song, two stars. <laughs> you know? And this one, this actually has a connection to Joe Strummer, who is so like three of my all time biggest artists for me are the Boston's Joe Strummer and Jesse Mallon. And three out of the four movies here have connections to those guys. We'll get to those in a bit, but. So this movie is brought to us by MGM, who are also responsible for uh, 1408, Hannibal Rising, and Red Dragon. And we also <laughs> had the uh, Village Roadshow, Hoyt's Film Partnership, which brought us House of Wax, I Am Legend, and Dreamcatcher, and <laughs> which we all have opinions on. Mm -hmm. And finally, a Beacon Communications production, which brought us Children of Men and End of Days. One out of two ain't bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's a mixed bag here. You know, there's some good, there's some bad. Much like this movie. Yeah, but this movie starts off knowing what it is, what it's about. It starts off with these like hypnotic lights flashing your eyes and big boom, boom. Get used to that sound effect. Oh, I use it a lot. <laughs> I might just randomly intersperse it during this when we publish the episode. <laughs> just sporadically. Just jam, 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 jam. I did not enjoy the credits to this. It was not great. I just found them really kind of annoying. And the, the song and the music was fine. But I once I found out it was Mark Snow and it started making me think of X-Files the next couple of times I watched this, I liked it more than when I first saw it. So, again, I can mind trick myself into anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the movie starts off at Make Out Point by the Dam. Uh, with on the radio, it's playing The Flies, which I got very excited to hear. Yeah, that's actually kind of the key track in the movie. And it's uh, the video for that, for The Flies. It's got Katie Holmes and James Marsden in it. Yep. And what happens in the video mimics the finale of the movie itself. So I appreciated that. Love it. <laughs> yeah, it opens on Andy and Mary Jo, who are making out in this vehicle. Andy is wearing a notable blue high school jacket. And they're making out, and as things progress, he kind of breaks things off. She says, what the hell? And he says, oh, I got a game Friday. I need my fluids. Which I immediately went to Dr. Strangelove, or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, that's on purpose. That has to be on purpose. They exchange some dialogue about that. She puts her foot up on the 
Dash, he takes note of her tattoo and says, why would you do something like that? Which I mentioned that specifically because we'll get into that more in the script. So she talks about that a bit. And then her head starts drifting below frame down towards his crotch. He looks happy for a moment before the camera closes in on his eye. We get a red flash in his pupil. Yeah, he goes dark. His whole face just drops. And then there's a snap, which would be her neck. Yeah, it's pretty damn brutal. And holds up her dead body, calls her a slut, and lets her go limp. At this point, we're introduced to Nick Stahl playing Gavin Strick. Yeah, it's like him and his dog just out for a walk, and they happen to come across the car like, hey, what's going on here? Also, I'm not sure it's mentioned in the film, but in the script, his dog's name is Hysteria. Oh, really? Nice. No, it was yes, not. It's That's not. great. <laughs> it's a cute dog, too, with a little bandana. Yeah, nice doggy. So while I was watching this scene, and I have a note, and it made me think of it, and I will apologize if I use these interchangeably without thinking about it through the rest of this recording. I have a note that says, today the Blue Ribbons would be proud boys. <laughs> we won't get into what they are or what this is, but if I call the Blue Ribbons proud boys later, I apologize. It's just how I started thinking of them. Okay. I'll try not to. <laughs> so Gavin, played by Nick Stahl, is poking around with his dog. He's watching this car kind of rock back and forth, speculating about what's going on inside. Then we see a police car pull up. Two officers get out. Flash the flashlight inside. The one police officer talks Andy into leaving the vehicle, exchanges some dialogue with him about, oh, you ready for the game this Friday? Whatever. When the other police officer takes note of the dead body in the car, begins to have a WTF moment when Andy grabs the gun from the police officer that he's next to and riddles this other cop with bullets. And all he does is repeat, I need my my fluids. fluids. (laughs) officer takes the gun back and says get out of here kid i'll take care of the rest and andy takes off and gavin staring on is very holy shit this this is also where we get the sequence we mentioned briefly during urban legend with lights making noises when the cop is flashing his flashlight around it's making this very distinct sound but it has a more distinct plot connection here than it does in urban legend so that's our open And from here, we're introduced to Steve Clark, played by James Marsden. From X-Men, Westworld, and the new upcoming The Stand series. I have a soft spot for James Marsden. I've always thought he was kind of underappreciated. I think he's actually quite a solid actor. I like him in this. I still have questions about him playing Stu, but we'll see. (laughs) And his sister in this is played by Catherine Isabella. Catherine motherfucking Isabella. Yes. Oh, my God. From Ginger Snaps and Hannibal. I love this woman. She's amazing. And she's a lot of fun in this in a very small part. But yeah. And they're on a ferry on their way into town as they are moving into this town from Chicago. Chicago. And there are allusions to them getting a fresh start here, having had some incident of some sort that they're trying to leave in their past from Chicago. We're not sure exactly what it is, but shortly hereafter, we're given a little bit of a hint. As after settling into this new household and starting to move in, we see that James Marsden apparently dreams in VHS footage as he sees <laughs> his older brother, Alan, played by Ethan Embry, in this rapid cut montage of VHS footage saying, don't worry about snakes in your garden when there's spiders in your bed. <laughs> James Marsden wakes up in a panic. I just want to mention one thing before the nightmare. Like he comes in at some point and his sister, Lindsay, is at the table playing with like a Play-Doh alien dissection kit. 
Yes. <laughs> she's got these big ass tongs just like ripping organs out of the thing. I'm like, where the hell do you get one of those? <laughs> it was a specific nod to X-Files. Oh, nice. I love it. That makes a lot more sense. Okay. I wanted one. <laughs> See, so now when we talk about this flashback or dream he has of his brother, it's one of the problems, I think, the big problems with the theatrical cut, because a lot of his motivation and a lot of what's going on with him is related directly to his brother and what happened to his yes. brother. And it gets yes. laid out in one of the deleted scenes where he's on a ferry talking to Katie Holmes later and he explains what happened to his brother, why his family is the way they are, why they have these reactions to things. And it makes a lot of sense. And cutting that out makes the brother's storyline completely irrelevant to the entire movie. Which is clearly the point of the cut. Right. You know that they moved because his brother is dead. The end. That's the entirety you get of his brother. They turn it into an impetus for starting the story, not for actual character development. Right. And it, in that, it strips the main pathos away from James Marsden, and he becomes kind of a cipher for the entire film. Yes. Yeah. Its function in the finished film is mostly that he has some vague sense of damage and that he has a rift with his parents, which feeds into a decision they make towards the end of the film. Right. That's largely it. It turns into nothing more than a reason why you don't have to interact with the parents at all. That's it. They turn it from interesting character-driven backstory to this is why we're not going to see them because he doesn't really talk to them anymore because of this stuff that happened. That's yeah. it. That's it. The only purpose it holds anymore. Yeah, and it's, to my mind, it's one of the bigger things that just makes what could have been a very good movie just a, a fun flick. Yep. So after this semi-nonsensical VHS nightmare, we cut to Steve's first day at school and specifically in his English class. He sits in the back and observes various characters interacting with the school teacher, mainly Dickie Atkinson. He shows up late. Yep, shows up late, and he's part of what we'll soon find out is the Motorhead group of the high school, the Motorhead subdivision. The car guy. He also really reminded me of Buter in Everybody Wants Some. <laughs> I thought that. Okay. Nice. <laughs> Which, because Nick Stahl's character reminds me so much of Finnegan from that, I, I whatever on the second connection, I made that connection of why this guy reminded me of somebody and who it was. And it's Buter. And Dickie has this testy exchange with a, another member of what we'll find out is the blue ribbon group. It's another character. It's not Andy who we saw in the opening, but another character who is wearing the same jacket that he was. He makes a derisive comment at Dickie's expense. Dickie tells him essentially to go fuck himself. They get in a brief tussle. Dickie is ejected by the teacher, who has one of the lines I thought was just amusing in his delivery. Wait, please send Principal Weathers our hosannas! As he sends him out. <laughs> I loved everything the teacher says. Like, literally every line the teacher has in that brief scene is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Explain to me what a peckerhead is. <laughs> the teacher's played by somebody who's an old buddy of David Nutter. Oh, nice! Uh, okay. every, look, everybody in this is an old buddy of David Nutter. And or somebody who worked on X-Files and still lives in Vancouver. <laughs> Everybody but James Marsden and Katie Holmes and Nick Stahl fits into that category. So now we get Steve in the cafeteria eating a sandwich with some vibrant ass lettuce. It's very bright. <laughs> and we're introduced to Gavin and UV. Gavin, who we met in the opening, played by Nick Stahl. And then UV, played by Chad Danella, who sit down and introduce themselves and then they have this extended sequence of them going around the room introducing steve to the various subdivisions of the school demographics yep. 
Gavin has this formula basically where he has the same classifications he uses to describe all the various groups. And then UV chimes in with a quip. <laughs> there are the motor heads, which UV chimes in as freaks who fix leaks. The micro geeks, freaks, they go squeak. The skaters, freaks and sneaks. Then the blue ribbons who get two UV lines, which are blue robots and freaks so chic. <laughs> and then there's themselves, freaks all week. <laughs> One quick script anecdote. The little chime-ins of the freaks who fix leaks and whatnot. Originally, that was all Gavin's. UV's only line was blue robots. Ah. That was it. So it was nice that they gave those other bits to UV so he could chime in. That was nice. And there's actually another group in the script. There is a sequence where it says a pair of hippie-like girls walk by in flower print dresses and sandals. Gavin, there's your earth-crunchy hippie flea bags. Flower dresses and tie-dyed and stankin' a patchouli because bathing is a no-no. Music of choice? The dead. Barefoot vixens worshipping a deceased fat guy with a white beard. <laughs> Maybe I should grow one, huh? Drug of choice? Blotter acid. Sheets of it. <laughs> the button on that is freaks who reek. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was amusing that it was excised and probably a good cut because it's like, that's not something I think of a lot in high school as having a hippie contingent. College, yes, but... Not so much high school. Oh, we had a hippie contingent. <laughs> Did you? Okay. Oh, yeah. The one thing I like about this scene that I want to mention is that the lighting changes for each of the groups. Mm. If you watch it, it's like it's a darker blue and a darker yellow. and a, It's an interesting thing. I didn't notice it on the first pass, but I noticed on the second is that it serves to kind of highlight and make their distinct modes of dress a little sharper. The thing I like is they come over to sit down with him for lunch. They have this exchange, like kind of establishing the clicks in themselves, and then they get up and leave. <laughs> lunch is over. <laughs> like, like they don't, yeah, Gavin has that big-ass sandwich and never touches never it. Never touches <laughs> it. Just stands up and leaves after having the discussion. All right, well, we filled you in. Bye. <laughs> UV spends the whole sequence rubbing an apple on his shirt to shine it, but never eats it. Nope. <laughs> it's like, At least not that I remember. It's like that, that, that's odd. <laughs> Very fast lunch. One of my pet peeves in movies is when people have good-looking food but don't touch it. It's half the reason I hate signs. And in this, he's got that big sandwich, and it looks it's all good, wrapped up, and he just never even goes near it. Like, this is second. the sandwich nope. that I hold. This is my security sandwich. <laughs> and that sequence comes to an end, so now we've established that Steve has some semblance of a friend base. Cut to an awkward meal at their home, where his sister has had a friend over, and Lindsay makes a reference to her brother, but she's not referring to her brother Steve. She's referring to her brother Alan, who we now have confirmed is, in fact, deceased. The father wants to dance around the subject. Steve makes it very clear that you know, dad's being an asshole and doesn't like it when we talk about my brother. He gets up and storms out of the meal. So lovely, awkward ass meal for this poor girl's friend. Yep. And then we intercut this with Dickie Atkinson, who was ejected from English class earlier who has apparently been lured to a seedy location at the docks at the docks for black market <laughs> car parts, apparently. <laughs> but it is not, in fact, the car part he was expecting. He is instead surrounded by this group we now know are the Blue Ribbons. This group of characters are all wear this blue jacket of the school insignia and who all have various long implements like golf clubs and hockey sticks in this sequence and who descend on Dickie and begin to attack him. You know, this scene reminded me of something, and I've been racking my brains to figure out what it is, and it just came to me. It's Twilight. 
There's a scene like this in Twilight where the guy is on the docks and he gets attacked by the the vamp the bad vampires. I don't remember which fucking one it was. It was <laughs> one through four, because they're the only ones I saw. But yeah, there's a very similar scene in one of the Twilight movies to this, and it, it had been bugging me. And now I'm just embarrassed. Moving along. <laughs> <laughs> to make you feel better, we're about to come up on a sequence that vaguely reminded me of Twilight. So we get Steve's second day at school following this. We don't see Dickie's fate, but it will come up very shortly. Yep. But we get Steve's second day at school. And at the end of his second day, as he's leaving, he exits the school and he sees a pickup truck parked with a girl standing in the bed of it. And this would be our introduction to Katie Holmes. Who was a major player in Dawson's Creek? <laughs> <laughs> there is one character introduced before we meet Katie Holmes, actually. Steve is pulled into the principal's office to meet Dr. Edgar Caldecott, played by Bruce Greenwood, who has pulled him aside to uh, discuss the Blue Ribbons. Now, we've discussed Bruce Greenwood before in our Gerald's Game episode. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> episode four. Big fan here. <laughs> but we, we've never talked about Bruce Greenwood with this kind of glaring mustache mistake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is a fascinating caterpillar on his face. It is both incredible, shocking, and probably the scariest thing in this film. <laughs> my only note on that is in all caps, oh my God, Bruce Greenwood's mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Not far off from what I have. And it's one of those things, what is it? It's a YouTube video or a podcast. How did this get made? Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where I wish they would do this because I would like the backstory to how anybody thought Bruce Greenwood's mustache was a good idea. Even <laughs> Bruce Greenwood. It was the tail end of the 90s, man. We weren't doing as many drugs then, so... Yeah, all we established in the initial call to cut sequence is simply that he's essentially the school counselor and the advisor for this group called the Blue Ribbons, who are essentially the academic elite, so to speak, of the school, or elite in one way or another and which they're kind of gently nudging Steve into considering joining. After this, we get the introduction of Katie Holmes, and she stands on the bed of a truck. It's, it's such a creepy scene. It cuts from her. Katie Holmes is standing on the bed of this truck, moving in slow motion while this song plays over top. It cuts from her to James Marsden watching her six times! Of him just standing still while she sits there. And it made me think of the scene in the second Twilight where she's sitting in the room and the camera's tracking around her as the seasons change because it felt like the fucking seasons should be changing as many times as it cut from him to her. It is a fascinating way to show that he is instantly smitten with her. She doesn't have much dialogue in this movie either. It's a little upsetting. No, she doesn't have much to do. And I'll mention now that there are things she had to do in the script that are given to Steve in the finished film. Oh, man. Just bits and pieces. But yeah, they did not do right by her character. No. Quick script note. The song that's specified for this sequence in the script is Cinderella's Coming Home. Yeah, it's definitely not that. Yes. <laughs> I'll mention now too one of my issues with a film that's going to come up is Scott Rosenberg obviously has this ear for unique dialogue. You know, he has these really punchy scripts for things to do in Denver when you're dead, but him transposing that into teen dialogue is a little iffy at points in trying to write snappy teen dialogue. And some of it works and some of it's really fucking out there. So some of that also comes through in some of the song choices too, where there's song choices in the script is like, is that? Oh. <laughs> so she does have the altogether ooky line. 
which is verbatim in the script, altogether ooky. <laughs> and before that, we get Gavin coming by to elaborate on her to Steve when Steve asks who that girl is, and Gavin says, Bonafide Jitterbug, <laughs> Cook's Ridge Trash. To her face, no less. Yeah. She's a nice girl, but she's Cook's Ridge Trash. She just smacked the shit out of him right there. Cook's Ridge, I guess, being the neighboring town, best I could tell. I mean, he goes down there because the town they're in is not Cook's Ridge, it's Cradle Bay. And then Gavin then introduces Steve to Rachel proper, Rachel being the name of Kitty Holmes' character. And they just keep giving each other the eye. <laughs> they just keep eyeing each other up hardcore. Yes, she and Steve are just exchanging looks. This is where we're also introduced to her particular dialogue banter with Gavin, which is the fail to be a blank, which is introduced by her telling Gavin, fail to be a tumor, Gavin. And then <laughs> later on, we get the exchange of him telling her, fail to be a bimmy bitch. And she responds, fail to be a pucker ass. <laughs> so they go off to socialize. And by socialize, in this case, I mean, try to buy beer from a guy who looks like somebody spliced Timothy Spall with Pete Postlethwaite. <laughs> but then Gavin has one of my favorite lines of the movie here. So, like, after he's failed to get an adult to uh, get in the beer, he's like, the problem with America is mankind's abject unwillingness to contribute to the delinquency in minors. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yeah. (laughs) I loved Gavin in this. Almost everything he says made me laugh. I mean, he was just, he's very much the kind of character archetype that I enjoy. And I mentioned the comparison to Finnegan from Everybody Wants Him, which if you haven't seen, you should pause this, go watch that, and then come back and watch the rest of this. Not that they have anything to do with each other. You should just see that movie. <laughs> Moving on. How many times have you watched it, Jake? I don't know. A lot. <laughs> like <laughs> more than 30? I don't know if I've gotten up to 30. I saw it four times in the theater. I know. By myself. I know. And there have been multiple nights you've watched it multiple nights on your own. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've watched it a lot. Yeah. Like a lot. <laughs> I, I just don't know if it's quite 30. However many minutes we've been recording, Jake's watched it more than that. <laughs> <laughs> And at this point, we're introduced to another new character being Chug. Chug. Who is another member of the Blue Ribbon Group. But all of the members of the Blue Ribbon Group will quickly find out are teetering on the edge psychologically in various ways. But Chug may be a little bit more so than most. <laughs> yep. As he approaches Rachel, says some very creepily flirtatious lines <laughs> in which she brushes off. Chug heads into the nearby grocery store, is staring at Rachel while in line at this store, and very creepily checking out her look, and he's getting these flashes and beginning to twitch a bit as he looks at her. Which David Nutter refers to as blue ribbon vision. And then you get the close-up on his one eye, and the pupil just lights right up. Like, oh, shit. And then some poor soul behind him is unfortunate enough to bump into him, and is then promptly chucked into the Captain Crunch end cap. He wrecks the (laughs) shit out of them. He rips the one kid's nose ring out. Punches the other one to the ground and then keeps punching him until he's unconscious. It's like, holy crap. Yeah, and then spears a dude into the meat section <laughs> later. It's just this utter beat down. And the same police officer from the opening happens to be present, calms Chug down, and escorts him out. It's rough. Yes. Every time a member of this Blue Ribbon crew shows up, we're clued in on something is decidedly amiss with them. We then get Gavin introducing Steve to the cancer corner, which is a basement area, which is where they go to smoke. And we're introduced to Newberry, played by Bill Sadler, 
whose first line of dialogue is what I mentioned at the start of the pod. Which is, what are you shit bitch doing down here? I've loved William Sadler for so many years. I mean, whether it's Demon Knight, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, The Green Mile, or The Newest Grudge, I mean, he can do no wrong in my world. The man's amazing. The always reliable Bill Sadler. He's so good in this. He's so I just good. love every scene he's in. Yeah, he just bursts in from a damn sewer grate out of nowhere while, like, Gavin's trying to tell Steve about Andy's murder. <laughs> Ranting about rats. Rattus, rattus. <laughs> and as we find out later, his cover story is that he's paid 25 cents per rat that he catches by the city. And as this obsession with eliminating rats is he's fiddling with this electronic device. Eradicator. <laughs> and... As we just mentioned, this character that he's playing is just that. It's a character. It's subterfuge where he's actually a far more intelligent person than he's letting on, where he's playing far stupider than he is. There's a reveal of this that comes later. But the choice of characters that he's made, just with his whole demeanor, with his, with everything. <laughs> like, I like to think we find out he's a literature guy later, but I like to think that like he was a drama guy and he went at some point in his past. He went really, really method for a performance of Beckett's Craps Last Tape, and he just never came out out of that hole. (laughs) He's just always in Craps Last Tape mode. (laughs) They refer to the bit as underground Popeye in uh, (laughs) commentary. That's pretty it. Well, at this point, you know, they they wrap up their introduction to Newberry, and they leave the school. They're leaving for the day. At which point they see the blue ribbons are smashing Dickie's car. And they're like, oh, crap, Dickie's going to be pissed. At which point the newly blue ribbon Dickie gets up and starts smashing his car, too. He is fully converted and a part of the team now. And there's a banner that it's like car smash day. And <laughs> something <laughs> like that. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm a little I felt like this was a little bit off, only in that. It's an established fact that the Blue Ribbons are a group that are headed by Dr. Caldecott using his methods or such to get people onto the Blue Ribbon track. In fact, they talk later, just to spend a little bit, that people are selected. Parents are informed and, you know, kids are brought into that. So how exactly did him getting jumped by the Blue Ribbons <laughs> result in, like, his parents being okay with him suddenly being completely fucking different when he came <laughs> home. <laughs> I'm like, ah. Uh... <laughs> this is a little off. Just a little bit. It's one of my few complaints with this film. And the Blue Ribbons hang out of choice being a location by the name of the Yogurt Shop. This old-timey sort of malt shop, ice cream shop location. Very 50s. Yeah. Steve is invited to come sit with the Blue Ribbons, who all sit at the back of this location. They have this sort of creepy cadence to the way they speak, and they introduce themselves and are trying to coax Steve into their group. Gavin comes by, gets Steve out of there. They exit, at which point Gavin points out, all those motherfuckers are hypnotized, and here's proof, as he produces a photo of three of them being Robbie, Randy, and Trent looking decidedly different than they do now as they're smoking an enormous bong and (laughs) says, this was them a scant few weeks ago. And look at them now. They used to be my friends, not so much anymore. It is also worth noting that while they're trying to recruit Steve in the shop before he leaves with Gavin, one of them refers to his brother and he visibly riles at it. Like, don't call me brother. You know, (laughs) like I think he's kind of on the fence about that because he's not all in with Gavin yet. 
And then he calls him brother, and he's like, ah, oh, man, no, fuck these guys. Right. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't even go there. I'm out. It feels very definitively as the moment where Steve stops entertaining them as a possible life track for himself. Yep. Mm. And then he and Gavin go off to the parents' meeting. Yes, at this point, Gavin wants to further stress to Steve, look, there's some creepy shit going on. I'll show you. They crawl into a vent in the school where there's a meeting going on of Dr. Caldecott speaking with the parents of the various Blue Ribbon kids. I love Caldecott's presentation where he has brought graphs of some sort and charts showing academic progress of some variety. And he's talking about how great the Blue Ribbons are doing and how they are exceeding in various metrics. One of the parents expresses concern that one of their kids who has become part of the Blue Ribbon program has come back decidedly crueler than they were before. Unkind to any non-Blue Ribbons. To which Dr. Caldecott waves it off as, when you soar with the eagles, sometimes the pigeons below look a little pedestrian. (laughs) At which point Dr. Caldecott's assistant says, hey, we have another candidate being put up for being a Blue Ribbon, which was signed off on by his parents, and they rattle down the list of criteria, among which is C student, lackluster grades, and parents concerned about his excessive masturbation. (laughs) (laughs) And then the parents are called in, and they are Gavin's parents. This is like, I'm fucked. I'm a dead man. Now, Gavin flies into a panic at this, realizing he's next on the hit list. Steve is convinced that he's catastrophizing, that it's not nearly that bad. And Gavin tells him, you think this is all about blood drives and bake sales? And (laughs) is trying to stress that there's more going on to the degree that he produces a gun and makes clear that he's quite willing to shoot anyone who tries to get him into the blue ribbon group. But Steve is able to wrangle the gun away from him. And says, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, Steve sells him all the way out here. Yes. Well, no, like, I, I understand the impulse, to, but... <laughs> to be fair, no, no, I, I'm actually with Steve on this one to a degree. Because... Yeah, realistically, I am too. Nobody should have a gun. I'm yeah, just saying, yeah, he sells yeah. him out. But he also <laughs> offers him to stay at his place. He's like, you don't have to go home. You can come home with me. And Gavin doesn't take the offer, you know? So I put it on Gavin, not not on Steve. Steve did the right thing taking the gun. That would just escalate it terribly for everyone. Funny they mentioned that in the script, Gavin asks to stay with Steve, and Steve tells him no. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, Gavin actually <laughs> says, can I just stay with you? And Steve's like, go home. Interesting change. So he extra sells him out. Yes. Huh. There's a bit more to that exchange in the script, but yeah, that particular bit I thought was interesting that they switched who broaches that topic of staying at whose home. Well, they wanted to keep Steve as the positive heroic guy. Even if he doesn't believe him, he's there for him. Yeah. Now, one thing that does set up the notion of Gavin wanting to stay with him and Steve shooting him down in the script is in the finished film, we see Gavin leave and then it cuts immediately to a pair of shoes going through the school. Yep. And this unseen person enters the cafeteria. We get Steve and Rachel and UV sitting in the cafeteria. Rachel looks up, has this reaction, has what I assume is a memorable line from this movie for most people, which is, who put the acid in my spam? (laughs) And we see Gavin, who has now been converted to a blue ribbon, a decidedly different haircut, and is wearing the jacket and a decidedly different demeanor. So in the finished film, it cuts right from Gavin going home to Gavin converted. There is a shitload of stuff in the script in between those two things, to the point that Steve actively goes looking for Gavin and talks to multiple people. Oh, wow. Over more than one day. Oh, shit. And Steve actually starts to fall into a bit of a depression over this 
Well, that would make sense. That makes more sense. Because he feels like he somehow already let his brother down because obviously he wasn't there for him enough in his mind. And now he's done it again. Yes. Oh, wow. Like the script makes a point of noting how Steve looks more and more disheveled as this goes on and looks more worse for wear. Oh, good. That sounds cool. Rachel and Steve go to try and speak with Gavin. The other blue ribbons are holding them back, at which point we get cafeteria chair attack. <laughs> it's just Steve picking up a chair and beating a blue ribbon with it. Not that it does much. Everyone else in the room bolts. Yeah, it, it's one of my favorite scenes is the cafeteria emptying out <laughs> when they realize what's about to happen. That's Everybody else is like, opposite. fuck this. But that's not how school works. They should have circled that entire group and just been like, fight, fight, fight. <laughs> that's how high school works. <laughs> right. But it reinforces that this is not a normal high school and they know how dangerous the blue ribbons are. It does reinforce that everyone's scared of them. Yes. Like they're like normal fight. Yeah. The blue ribbons fight. Let's get out of here because somebody might die. That plays. And he wasn't originally going to hit him with a chair. He was going to punch him. And James Marsden suggested that. Oh, nice. And... Nutter refers to James Marsden hitting the guy with the chair as the Chicago way. <laughs> That's <Very nice>. perfect. <laughs> That's Which was well perfect. Because <laughs> he was apparently he's like, I'm not just going to hit this guy. I'm going to hit him with a chair because that's, you know, that's the Chicago way. If it's like, going to be a fight, yeah. I'm going to win this fight. <laughs> yeah, Steve, to put it politely, has his ass handed to him by the Blue Ribbons. He's outnumbered. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then Gavin's hand comes into frame to help him up. Steve's like, are you okay? And Gavin says, I'm more than okay. And punches Steve in the gut. Just knees him. Bow. It's worth noting that Ray and UV both try to help out too. They're not just bystanders. Yes. This whole team's with them. That's right. Doesn't go well, but they try. Newberry, of course, sees the whole thing, but he can't do anything. And they knock over his bucket. And they all, and the blue ribbons all leave, leaving Steve bloodied and bruised. Cut from here to Steve in the aforementioned cancer corner when Newberry enters, mumbling to himself about rats when Steve takes note of a book in his pocket. Slaughterhouse Five! And says, basically, what the hell is this shit, you know? And I, I understand now you're pretending to be a lot dumber than you are. To which Newberry snatches it out of his hand and says, Give me that! Oh, brother! And yells at <laughs> Steve to get your, out. Your impression of him makes my entire night. I just want to say oh, that right now. <laughs> Well, he yells at Steve to get out, and then the camera holds on him for about 20 seconds of him just staring. It's, it's so long, this shot. And right as Steve's about to leave, it, do you like Kurt Vonnegut? <laughs> then he comes clean about, you know, yes, this is a facade I'm putting on. He said, you'd be surprised how interesting people become when they think you're really stupid. To which my note is not in 2020, brother. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines in the entire movie. It's just delivered so perfectly, mm -hmm. and it's just so fun. William Sandler is the best. I love him so much. Yeah, yeah, he, he's a lot of fun in this. But we don't dwell on that revelation long, because from there, Steve heads home. Well, first, on his way home, he gets chased by the Blue Ribbons. Then the, the Lost Boys homage. Yeah, they kind of like chase him like through the forest. And what he hears him yipping and yapping. Which was actually a cutscene for that, because he eventually yeah. gets saved by uh, the police officer in the cutscene. The police officer makes it clear that ever since, you know, the project's been in place, there have been no more drunk driving incidents. I believe this is where he actually, he mentions that before the program, there was a, a terrible accident where, like, someone was uh, drunk driving and just took out an entire car of people. Yes, that shook the town to its core. Yep. Yeah, and, and this is the moment that 
inspired them to lean on someone like Dr. Caldecott, whose results have spoken for themselves. And it's clear that Officer Cox is 100% on board with the occasional fuckery on the side, considering how much this is removed from the equation already. Yeah, this is an important bit of context for why the town is pulling a dairy from it, essentially, and being cognizant of this shit isn't entirely on the up and up, but okay. (laughs) It's like Footloose, but with more murder. I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Steve arrives home, so now we get a sequence with Lorna. Interestingly enough, this is a sequence in the movie that's not in the script. Oh, really? So Lorna in the script, she is present and she shows up as she does here, where she's hanging out with his younger sister, but she's more recurring as a recurring implication that the Blue Ribbons are keeping tabs on him. Yep. We can hit you at home if we wanted to, so it has this vaguely threatening element to it. But yeah, this specific sequence with Lorna, which is one of the more noticeable sequences of the film because of how extreme it gets, is not in there, which is Lorna exchanging vaguely flirtatious dialogue with Steve. You know, who says, you know, that's nice, please leave. And she goes to use the restroom first. And again, sexuality seems to be a bit of a trigger for the Blue Ribbons. When yep. she's thinking back on Steve as she's looking in the mirror, red light goes on in her eye and she exits the bathroom with her top open. Hair pulled back, shirt open. He tells her to go home. One boob exposed. One boob exposed. <laughs> he tells her to go home. She kisses him, but he sees her light light up and it just freaks him out. He pushes her back. At which point, she and what she says is like what she's doing is wrong and bad bad and just starts ramming her head into the mirror like oh jesus yeah to the point that she gigs herself and she starts bleeding from the forehead yeah she picks up a mirror shard attacks him he throws her to the side and that's when she snaps out of it and then she just kind of acts like nothing happened she closes her shirt and goes i have to go I i have a test tomorrow and then just leaves it's probably the most distinctly horrific scene in the film yes i thought yes it also made me wonder if it had anything to do with ratings if you only show one boob. <laughs> Don't believe so, but... <laughs> it's PG-14. <laughs> like, because nudity, you say nudity, it implies more than one nudity. This is just one nudity unit. <laughs> and it's that in the entire movie. You're allowed two buttocks and one boob. <laughs> <laughs> like, if there was one more boob, does it kick the rating up more? Or... <laughs> Smash cuts directly from this to Lorna in a chair in a facility somewhere. Sorry, one more point about that scene is why she's in the bathroom. He goes and pulls a Coke out of the fridge, showing that this is a Coke movie rather than a Pepsi movie. <laughs> We're kind of alternating from the movies we do Coke, Pepsi, Coke, Pepsi so far. The Coke, Pepsi warps continue. Neither is present in the faculty, sadly. No, Dan and Springwater is the biggie in the faculty. Lots of water. Lots of water. <laughs> Cut to Lorna in a mysterious location where she's strapped to a chair. This is the convenient exposition dump. (laughs) Yes, of Dr. Caldecott and an assistant as they explain that, quote unquote, the chip is functioning properly. But what I did find is that excess stimulation to the pineal gland caused the dopamine levels to go through the roof. And Caldecott says, quite bluntly, every time one of these kids gets a heart on, they go out and beat someone with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, apparently the chip is installed on the optic nerve. Yes. And in the script, it specifies that the chip is called H8 and then red. Hatred. Oh, wow. That's terrible. That's awful. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a cut scene here. I think it's here where 
after he has that scene, he turns around and he talks to three people and says, we're getting closer to perfection. We're closer to the goal. You know, the project is on is on plan. And she's like, we're not risking exposure here. And it implies this much bigger conspiracy. Oh, I missed that one. Yes, this is where it gets very X-Files. They also say pineal instead of pineal gland. So there must be Stuart Gordon fans. <laughs> he decides to do a deep brain investigation. She's like, you know, you're worried about, you know, her parents went to some serious surgery. He's like, oh, you know, she'll have to be out of school for a day or two, you know, but you got to cut some of the bruises out of the banana. Like, oh, this gave this awful visual about what he's about to do to this poor girl's brain. Yeah, despite his mustache, I liked Bruce Greenwood in this, particularly how blunt he is with a lot of the dialogue. He's very brutal. He's very Bruce Greenwood. He doesn't say much, but he comes across as very terrifying. Like, this is the same Bruce Greenwood that, you know, likes handcuffs in Gerald's game. That is correct. As known in our episode about Gerald's game. Episode four, available now. (laughs) From here, we get Rachel, who's now in the cancer corner, where she discovers a tape that has been hidden for her. And shortly after finding that, she is cornered by Chug. Chug, once again, being flirtatious with her, but decidedly more unhinged initially than he was the last time he flirted with her, to which we get a sequence of him kind of corning her up against this pipe, telling her, I'm a blue ribbon, baby. Team captain, you're the one who's a trashy tattooed love doll. Come on, Ray Ray, give the plate up for Chug. And, so awful. Which a couple things. One is, I thought the standards of beauty that keep coming up where again, they're harping on tattoos in a negative sense like they were in the opening. Or it's that- It's a mutilation of the body. Shitty Americana, yeah. Yeah. I thought was interesting. And the other thing, too, is this is the scene where Chug really starts to sound like the evil Midnight Bomber from The Tick, <laughs> where he's just standing in front of him. He says, says, why don't you become a blue ribbon? I said, yeah, baby, yeah. <laughs> One of these days, yogurt shop, boom. <laughs> well, lucky for her, the eradicator gets a rat that walks right up to it and then like activates it. And when the noise goes off, Chug just wrecks the fuck out. He goes nuts. He's grabbing his head, kind of smacking it, runs up, finds the eradicator, beats the crap out of it. Yeah, he goes full office space yeah. on this thing. And <laughs> once it stops going off, he just kind of like twerks and tweaks and kind of like shakes back into normal as he walks off to class. Have a good day. The Nutter thought that this was almost too comedic, given how dark the scene leading up to it was. So dark. Yeah. But I think it worked. Because he's such a over-the-top character, it makes sense to have that kind of over-the-top reaction. I felt it was less comedic, honestly, than more there's something broken with this kid. Yeah. It's an incredibly violent scene, followed by an incredibly violent scene, followed by him literally kind of like, it's almost like the chip is shorting out and it's causing his body to twitch. Somewhat related. I just realized that you guys are saying Chug is his name and not Chuck. Chug. Up until now, I thought his name was Chuck. That yeah, was Chuck. Steve thought the same thing. <laughs> so my roommate is an enormous fan of this movie, and he specifically remembers the line, you know, come on, Ray Ray, give up the plate for Chuck. He thought it was Chuck, and then I sent him a screenshot of the script, and he went, wait, it's Chug? Yep, that's his nickname. <laughs> I, I'm having that right now. <laughs> Chug. You would think, given the blue ribbons and them having this kind of reserved demeanor that they're supposed to have this quote-unquote, you know, slice of Americana that it would be Chuck and something more, you know, standard, but nope, Chug. I have this image though, like they're so like anti-tattoo and anti-drinking and smoking and they're also wholesome. So he most likely got this nickname 
by them chanting Chug as he went to town on like a milkshake at the yogurt shop. (laughs) (laughs) It's not remotely the kind of Chug nickname you expect from the leader of the football team. No, it's like he's like, oh, vanilla, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel now leaves the cancer corner with this item that's been left for her. Steve shows up on her doorstep and she says, come in. I want to show you something. And she plays this footage, which is a video that Gavin recorded the night he found out that the Blue Ribbons were coming for him and says, hey, if if you're finding this tape, then that means they got me and I'm no longer the person I used to be and has various bits where he's lamenting what's about to happen to him. But in the process, he mentions a bit of information that he overheard during his various excursions trying to research the mystique surrounding Dr. Caldecott and one of which was a reference to a location called Bishop Flats and the Bishop Flats 11. That's all they really have to go on. And Steve and Rachel discuss, and they realize that Bishop Flats is a nearby location that they can hit via the ferry. It's a nearby asylum. And decide to go there and investigate. And there's where the X-Files connection becomes really handy, because we get pitch-perfect, sickly yellow X-Files lighting throughout this entire place. (laughs) There's also an X-Files location, if I remember correctly. Would not be surprised. I know the scene where... um... James Marsden is running through the forest and the rain was in the Millennium premiere. Oh, nice. The same location for that. Nice. Also related to that scene where they're talking in her house, she's got all these SAT prep books on her bookshelf and a big ass limb lifter poster. And the limb lifter is a Canadian alt rock band. I listened to a little bit. They were fine. It was just kind of surprising to have that right there and not one of the bands on like the soundtrack or something. Fair enough. She also said some gig posters that I couldn't track down anything info for. Something that also happens infuriatingly in the faculty. Big ass cheeser poster and then all these gigs and I couldn't find information on any of them. (laughs) nuts. So Steve and Rachel move about this facility and they encounter the residents there who are under apparently one guard and one nurse from what we see. Well, there's no security in this place. They just park and walk in. Just walk in like they own the place. It's ridiculous. And they walk through the freak quarter, you know, that's supposed to be with the deformed guy. Like high security the- zone. Yeah. And they keep running into like inmates just randomly walking the halls. Yes. You know, one guy like flossing his teeth so bad in the bathroom. He's got he's just bleeding. It's just like, what is going on here? My note is this is not exactly sensitive to mental illness. No, 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 no. no. Yeah, the residents here have one particular quirk that they've all latched onto that they repeat ad nauseum, where it's flossing teeth, brushing teeth. There's a girl who's perpetually putting on makeup. Yep. That's Frohickey's daughter. Got it. And Steve and Rachel then make it into a side room where there is a girl present, and her particular quirk that she's latched onto is the repetition of a phrase, which is, meet the musical little creatures that hide among the flowers. But upon them showing up, they clearly agitate her, and she just starts ramping up faster and louder. And it starts ticking off Meet all the, the other enemies. musical little creatures that hide among the flowers. <laughs> and as she's perpetually getting more agitated, so are the other residents yep. who are standing outside. Steve calls attention to the girl's wristband, which has her first initial and her last name, which is Caldecott. Thus implying that she is, in fact, Dr. Caldecott's daughter. Yep. And that she is one of his failed experiments that he did leading up to the work he's now undergoing in Cradle Bay. That whole room is failed blue ribbons. Yes, the entire location is. And quick script note, this is another little bit that was originally given to Rachel in the script. In the script, Rachel says, Steve, look, and points at the nameplate, and she's the one who finds out it's Caldecott, which is a little thing 
But again, just every little thing that Rachel could do to have some sense of agency, they just kind of tossed to Steve. It's so upsetting. It's just like... They couldn't toss her decking the girl to Steve, though. I mean, they, they really just went out of the way to make her a sidekick. The girl he gets in the end. That's it. There's very little they let her bring to the table. It's so upsetting. Yeah. This is where we get the more iconic musical sequence of the film, which is as they flee the asylum. Flagpole sitter. It is a little too upbeat paranoia, for the escape they're paranoia, making. Paranoia, everybody coming to get me. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's, again, just the way they choose what things to use score for and what things they do songs for. And this one, again, it's building up to this has been this really freaky sequence of these people who are, you know, very damaged and potentially threatening to their safety. Yep. And we go into paranoia, paranoia. <laughs> and it fits on one level, but it's just yes. it's just kind of a tonal whiplash thing. Respect. They flee. They get back on the ferry to head home. At this point, there is a big swath of stuff that was cut and is present in the deleted scenes. Yeah. Where Steve opens up to Rachel about his brother and what exactly happened. Which, to go over in broad strokes, his brother Alan was madly in love with a girl by the name of Abby. And they likened themselves to Tristan and Isolde. And in the script, it specifies that Steve would kind of like follow him around with a VHS camera, hence the VHS tone to the brief flashes we get of alan in the movie that makes more sense some of it's in the deleted scenes more of it's in the script and they came to an agreement alan and abby wanted to elope they decided on a location to meet abby's parents found out locked her up sent her brother over to tell alan my sister's not coming go fuck yourself to which alan fell into enormous despair and shot himself and then the girlfriend broke out found him Thought that was a good idea, took her life, and then Steve's the one who found them. Yep. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, just so fucking awful. Some much needed context for the extent of the damage that precipitated this move mm-hmm. is laid out there. And this is also where the sex scene occurs that was cut. Yep. That surprised me that they cut it. I mean, it, normally you leave that sort of thing in, but I guess they had that one boob limit. <laughs> <laughs> you hit your quota. I think it was a good cut, honestly. I don't think it was necessary. The sex scene? Yeah, I don't think it was necessary. I mean, they're on the goddamn run. You know, it, it's... I don't know. I thought it was a good cut, because I think it was just been uh, thrown in for production value, as Roger Corman would have said. <laughs> <laughs> if they had made her more of a character throughout the movie, I would have been fine with it, but... That might be true. Because she's she doesn't come off as vapid but not she, at all like you said she's not not given anything to do yeah so it doesn't feel necessary to heighten their romance i really got the feeling from the character she was playing that she's a smart and passionate individual but you never see her have any opportunity to use it no not in the finished film yeah she talks about wanting to get out of cradle bay at one point and she just knows she can't i think that might have been a deleted scene actually yeah might have been in that scene yeah it might have been and in the script, too, she mentions at the start of the sex scene that, you know, this is where I lost my virginity. <laughs> like, on a ferry? And she's, yep. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> she's also got a no effects sticker on her truck, which is another band that's not in the movie. So she likes Limb Lifter <laughs> and no effects. And the movie just ignored her music choices, too. <laughs> they come ashore and they are quickly intercepted at a gas station by the police officer who's being vaguely threatening to them, asking where they've been. And shortly thereafter, Newberry arrives, and this is where he talks about how he's getting paid. The city pays him 25 cents per rat he kills. 
And Newberry is off to the side going about his business. Rachel asks if they can leave. The cop then becomes much more overtly threatening and says, get out of the goddamn car and get into mine. Forces both of them into the back of his cruiser. And then we get our El Cabong moment where <laughs> Newberry hits him <laughs> over the head with Come his on. eradicator. Bam! And that's a big rat is the follow-up line. <laughs> so he frees them. Tells them to get out of there. Interesting note, he's got Idaho plates. The movie takes place in Washington. Everybody else has Washington plates, but he's got Idaho plates. Oh, I missed that completely. Which is, it makes me wonder, because if this is on the coast in Washington, that's not particularly close to Idaho. No. So geographically, I don't know where it's supposed to place, but but yeah, he is he has decidedly got out-of-state plates. Interesting. Also, I'm a licensed plate nerd. Steve and Rachel have decided, all right, fuck this place. We need to just get the hell out of here. But Steve's insistent that I'm not leaving without my sister. Hell no, especially not with the blue ribbons eyeing her up. Yeah, he's like, we got to get her out of here. So he returns home to find his parents are, in fact, waiting for him. All the lights are off. All the lights are off. <laughs> the lights are off. And he tries to sneak in. He's coming in all quiet-like. And then the lights come on, and there's his parents. And they're all like, you know, hey, we're all here for you. And he has that second of hope. He's like, all right, parents are in on it. And he's about to say something when Dr. Caldecott rocks in from the other room. Why are all the lights off? <laughs> <laughs> I think the lights were off because Caldecott, in true Shinobi fashion, was instead clinging to the top of the ceiling. <laughs> because he doesn't walk in. He's just there behind Steve at one point, where Steve just turns, Caldecott's there, there's a door, but the door didn't open, it's not shutting, so he just ninja his way in and dropped down silently from the ceiling. He was crawling across the ceiling using the power of a mustache from the tick. <laughs> and yes, Steve's parents have indeed sold him essentially to Dr. Caldecott and said, you know, we're worried about you, so we volunteered you for the Blue Ribbon program. And this this is one of the most perfect oh shut the fucks up in <laughs> cinematic history. Yes. It's just <laughs> ideal. He just turns around and just oh shut the fuck up and it's perfect. Punch. It's perfect. <laughs> There's a quote on the uh commentary track from Nutter about it which is just he describes this line as him talking directly to the producers. <laughs> subtle that's awesome but I, and i'll say this we talked more about james marston playing stew in the upcoming stand and this oh shut the fuck up makes me more open to that prospect than anything else in his catalog or career Fair enough. yeah amazing shut the fuck up amazing gut punch to caldecott except the other blue ribbons are waiting for him outside they already have rachel and Chug comes up and just hits them down, and they leave with him and Rachel. They're taken away. And then, of course, we cut to them in Bishop Flats, and he's on a gurney going into a surgery room. He passes by and sees Rachel being put into an operating chair, which he shortly is put into a, a twin of. He said this was an homage to uh, Total Recall in Verhoeven. I could see that. Oh, yeah. By the chair, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, in, in the uh, scuffle, he uh, grabs a scalpel, which he hides up his sleeve, Doctor comes out and checks him out and talks a little bit about the procedure you're about to undergo. He mentions Steve very deliberately drops the phrase, meet the musical little creatures that hide among the flowers. 
thus cluing Dr. Kabakot in on the fact that Steve has met his daughter, which Caldecott responds, that's a fight I didn't win, but it's going to be better now because I've learned so much since then. Steve is like, people will know. And he says, they'll know because you'll be better. He goes, yeah, straight A's in a leather jacket, but every so often you rape and kill. And Caldecott says to cure cancer, you need to kill a few white mice. So then they initiate the chip insertion. Got him strapped in. I had problems with this. <laughs> <laughs> do tell. Because it's like they're trying to do two different methods at once. So you have like the chip insertion, which first off, there's no anesthesia. They just kind of lock his head in place. Mm -hmm. And they're going to like ram this large ass chip through his fucking eye <laughs> into place. So I, that's problematic on different levels. But, you know, the chip is sort of like going to be put in there and it will affect the body. It, all right. I took brain and behavior in college. So first off, I know for a fact that anything you connect to a nerve is going to do the same thing no matter what nerve you put it on. The only reason it would need to be on the optic nerve is because you actually want to affect what is either being seen or monitoring what is being seen, which doesn't make any – I don't understand the purpose of its location in this case. Regardless. <laughs> <laughs> That aside... Because it's scarier that way. No, I realize why they did it. Logically, I don't understand why they did it. But, you know, that aside... Okay, so you're going to put this chip on them, which affects their behavior and affects their brains. But while we're doing it, Before. just for the hell of it, <laughs> let's do this light show hypnosis thing as well. Because, you know, why not? <laughs> yeah, it's a flashing sequence of images of overwrought Americana images, families, the American flag, bald eagles, and key phrases. Go forward. Be great. Be better. I, either you condition him with the hypnosis and whatnot, or you fuck with his brain and, re and rewire the way you need it to go. Both is pointless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Shit, Jake's agreeing with me. Oh, fuck. <laughs> no, I, I had nothing. Uh oh, fuck the faculty. We got to get out while the getting's good on this episode. <laughs> disagree with Nick. Faculty, it'll be episode 10. Thank you for listening to episode 9. <laughs> We're calling it. Well, it didn't make any sense to me why they would shove the chip through his eye, which is what looks like it's about to happen. Absolutely. And it's enormous, too. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to go poorly. But Steve is able to, using the scalpel that he pocketed, sever a bit of the strap. Then break the whole goddamn arm loose, stab one of the attendants with it, and free himself before the chip takes root. Then makes his way to Rachel, is able to free her before the procedure had fully taken effect. Although she's unconscious, like she actually got drugged. I don't understand why they didn't drug him. Yeah. <laughs> is, is Caldecott just that fucking petty where he's like, you sucker punched me and now you're going to fucking suffer? You know, it's just like, Wow. Sorry to throw in another script note, but related to that in the script, he specifically tells Steve, I'm going to rewire you and I'm going to make you do the most fucked up shit you can imagine. So he specifically says basically that he's going to make Steve his personal slave. Oh, shit. So he says specifically, he said, yeah, you're mine now, motherfucker. So in that context, doing it without anesthesia would make sense because Fair he intends enough, on yeah. making Steve's life a living hell. It's personal. I think that would have helped my viewing of the situation. Yeah. <laughs> Many things would in this movie that was butchered to hell. <laughs> but he frees Rachel and they encounter Chug again. He's <laughs> just hanging out in the facility. The fight ensues. I believe he beats Chug with a pipe, if I recall correctly. Well, no, uh, Chug starts strangling Steve. And while Steve's like thrashing, trying to get away, Rachel pipes him. Yeah. Hey, Rachel gets something to do. Thank Christ. Yep. My note here is it's deep and I don't think it's playable. And then... 
Somehow, beyond understanding, UV and his sister pull up outside just as they leave. Yeah, I don't yes. understand that. <laughs> like, how would UV know what was going on? How would Lindsay know to contact UV? That is... I, but <laughs> my single least favorite thing in the movie. Well, yes and no. It is my least and favorite because there's no reason why they should be there whatsoever. But just before he gets in the car, UV stops and goes, what's the capital of North Dakota? And Steve goes, how the fuck should I know? And he goes, you're cool. Get in. <laughs> I just thought that was clever. Well done. <laughs> it's just so record scratching illogical. It bothered me, but I do like that line. It's very ex machina. And really, from this point in the movie on, nothing makes a lick of sense. No, 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 no. No, because this, they are driving away, and the movie establishes earlier, it seems to, that the Blue Ribbons are at the facility, because Steve gets glimpses of them as he's being wheeled in for his procedure. But now, as they leave, there is a human barricade of Blue Ribbons, thus preventing everyone from leaving. And call the cops with them! I don't understand. And I don't understand why Steve gets out of the damn car. That's one of those situations where you either try a different road or you go forward. <laughs> That's my only note on this is why would you get out of the car and face a crowd of them? And more to the point, why would Caldecott start shooting at the random car that follows him? Oh, jeez. Yeah. Caldecott corners him, says, time to leave mediocrity behind, Steven. Step up on the bus. And before the confrontation happens... In drives Newberry, William Sadler's character, with his vehicle with a tarp over the back. Tosses the tarp off, and we have an oversized and multiple versions of the Eradicator that were established earlier. He also plows into Caldecott. Yes, he sideswipes Bruce Greenwood. And some of the other Blue Ribbons, yeah. Which is important because we're getting up to a sequence where James Marsden fights Bruce Greenwood. And we know how jacked Bruce Greenwood is from Gerald's game. So it was like, and I have in my notes, normally I'd shit on Marsden for losing a fistfight to a dude who just got hit by a car. But we know how jacked Bruce Greenwood is from Gerald's game. So I still buy him. Marsden loses every fistfight he's in in this. Yeah, yeah, he's constantly getting pummeled. He yeah. is 0 for 3. He's not the hero for his brawn. He's the hero for his ideals. So Caldecott opens fire on Newberry, gets a couple shots in, but then Caldecott is sideswiped. Newberry activates this massive eradicator. All the blue ribbons go into a frenzy. And then Pied Piper style, Newberry starts leading them away, leading them towards this cliff overlooking a river. Which is the same spot the movie starts. Yes, the same outlook. Yep. And Steve chases after, meets up with Newberry, and Newberry's like, hey, we can't let these wackadoo fucks get out of town. No, he says, we very well can't have these shitbirds graduating and going off into the world. Yes. <laughs> And Steve's trying to convince Newberry to stick around. Newberry says, I can't, and makes it clear that he's been gut shot. So one of the bullets that entered from Caldecott has done terminal damage to Newberry. So instead, Newberry sits there, waits for the maximum amount of blue ribbons to clamor over his vehicle as he shouts to Stephen, do good things, lunch boy, and then drives the fuck off the side of this cliff. Hey, teacher, leave them kids alone. <laughs> Yes. Apparently, in the original cut, he gets through the whole verse singing it. <laughs> oh, nice. And it wasn't in the script for him to sing that. He just did it. Nice. nice. Oh, excellent addition. <laughs> That's fantastic. So most of the Blue Ribbons are disposed of at this point. Caldecott's still around. This is where we get the fist fight with the bad guy. Steve gets his ass handed to him for the most part, but is able to kick Dr. Caldecott over the ledge at one point with the 
signature line of be the ball. Yeah. One of the things that's repeated as part of the blue ribbon conditioning. One of the stock phrases they latch onto. And at which point we get the ending of the movie, which is they make it to the ferry. So UV, Steve, his sister, and Rachel, they all escape. Home will be where we make it. But this is the fascinating thing, because the biggest problem in the movie has been the Blue Ribbons. Like, yes, family is distant. They got all this fucked up dynamic. They really need some serious therapy. Yes, they got problems. But the Blue Ribbons and Dr. Caldecott are the true villains. And they've all been kicked the fuck off of a cliff. Just go home and go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, they're the only witnesses to a mass homicide. Yes, but they don't need to actually tell anyone that. Actually, I, I do take one thing back. Theoretically, Officer Cox was only knocked out, not killed. He could be a problem. I respect that. <laughs> and also, his parents sold him out. Fair. <laughs> they said, we don't like you the way you are. We would prefer you be a robot. I'm just impressed Lindsay goes with him. Like, honestly, I'm just impressed Lindsay goes with him at all. Why would she have gone with UV? Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, I guess you're friends. At no point in the film has she encountered UV. Don't be wrong, I love my siblings, but at some point they came to me and said, I'm leaving and you're coming with me. I'd be like, I, I don't know. <laughs> if my brother's albino weird friend came by and said, we got to run, <laughs> I would have questions. <laughs> Just saying. Before we get into the alternate ending of the movie, we'll quickly wrap up the actual end of the movie, which is main characters sail away on this ferry. And we cut to an inner city, outdated stereotype high school somewhere of a rowdy group of students. And the principal comes in and says, you've got a new student teacher today and you got to treat him better than you treated the last poor asshole who taught this class. Once again, we see a pair of shoes coming down the hallway. Person enters the room, turns around, and sure enough, it is Gavin, the next all character. So he was not part of the blue ribbons that went off the cliff. And we get the decided red gleam in his eye. So again, the blue ribbon programming that was put in his head is still in effect. My note here is y'all fucked. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> he's not the doctor. He can't recreate this effect. He can't like <laughs> create an army of glowy eyed, you know, more assholes who spread the disease or not. He's just going to slowly slaughter these children. <laughs> now, in broad strokes, I'm OK with this ending. I'm OK with this ending at this, you know outdated stereotype high school what i wanted was everything's the same with the shoes coming down the hall the principal saying we got a new teacher today and then it walks in and it's newberry and we find <laughs> out that bill sadler survived and is now a teacher and he just stands at the front and goes okay listen up shit birds this ain't dangerous minds and i'm not michelle pfeiffer <laughs> now put your asses in those seats we're reading fucking cat's cradle <laughs> <laughs> That would have made it all funny. That would have been a fun way to do that. I agree. <laughs> and then the movie started with flies and ends with the flies. One of the most perfect 90s songs. Got you where I want you. Yep. I just adore that song every time I hear it. It's ideal. And it's on the soundtrack, unlike Flagpole Surf. <laughs> and to touch on the original ending that David Nutter intended, which was in the script, which is Steve makes his way back to the ferry. To see UV, his sister, and Rachel all standing in a line, very still, to find out they're being held at gunpoint by Gavin, who is still in the sway of his Blue Ribbon Protocol. And they try and talk sense into him, try and talk around his programming a bit, looks for a moment like he might be conceding and starts to turn away as he starts to turn back and level his gun. And before he can fire, UV produces a pistol, 
and shoots Gavin three times. So Gavin has now been fatally wounded. Steve is cradling him. And as Gavin dies, we get bits of dialogue from him where it seems like the old Gavin is still present somewhere, specifically where he has the line, well, I guess I'll never realize my dream of meeting Trent Reznor. And Gavin dies in Steve's arms, and Steve is stands at the rail of the ferry, decidedly broken up by this, and that's how the original ending went. I like that ending a lot more. Eh. I mean, they've now committed a direct murder, but, you know, <laughs> self-defense. It's just that, you know, true friendship love saves the day, and, like, even though you've been shot, you'll die as you, you know, and you fought your programming and brain surgery, you know, through our caring for you. It's, it's just felt very trite. I just like another situation where James Marsden is not the hero. (laughs) (laughs) I'll really quickly hit some of the script notes. I won't take too long on this because to go into any amount of detail would take a while. But as far as stuff that was cut that wasn't present in the deleted scenes, if you have the DVD, check out the deleted scenes. There's like 11 of them on there. So there's a lot that was cut. But in the script, there were a couple big things that were excised. One is there were a lot more overtly horror bits that were cut. There is a sequence initially where the class goes on a trip to the morgue. Huh. They're on a school trip and the coach is showing them a cadaver like this poor bastard died because he was drunk driving. And one of the attendants there is like, yeah, he was a smoker, too, and holds up his black lung and all this awful shit. But while they're there, Gavin sees a gurney go by and sees the leg hanging out from the gurney and sees a tattoo on the ankle. It's Mary Jo, the girl from the opening. He recognizes her tattoo. So he knows, oh shit, Mary Jo is dead. Everyone in town is trying to say that she's gone missing because in the script, the cover story is that Mary Jo ran off with Officer Kramer, who's the cop that was shot. Got it. So Gavin now says, holy shit, I've got proof that Mary Jo is dead. He and Steve break into the morgue. They start going through the lockers in which the bodies are kept they finally find hers which is marked jane doe they open it up they roll her out and her body has been obliterated her face has been removed her fingers have been smashed and the flesh where the tattoo was has been cut away so it's this horrifically grotesque sequence of the degree they went to removing her identity yeah to remove her identity but also done is this very overtly horror bit where they pull this sheet back and it's like holy fuck And there's other graphic imagery as well. When the conversion sequence happens at the end, when they're trying to convert Steve into being a blue ribbon and the chips going towards his eye, he's given a nightmare of Alan, his brother, and Alan's girlfriend in which their suicide occurs on camera and they keep talking to him with mangled faces that they've just blown off. Holy crap. So there are much more overtly horror-y bits that were cut and the morgue comes back because it's connected to the Bishop Flats facility underground. So they end up resurfacing there at one point when they go to escape. There is a subplot with Officer Kramer, the cop who is shot in the beginning, with his wife, who Steve interviews. Steve takes a much more active role in trying to investigate shit in the original script. Huh. He talks to this cop's wife, who makes it clear in a roundabout way that, again, this very dairy Stephen King thing where she's like, yeah, there's some sinister shit going on. But what are you going to do about it? And when he returns to her later, she's been converted into a blue ribbon. We meet Rachel's mother. Huh. We actually see her in the script and have some dialogue with her and talking about Rachel's aspirations to leave the city. And then there's a major subplot with a character by the name of Drip Stillwell, who is a very nerdy character 
who Steve saves from getting bullied early on. And Drip is the number one student in the school. And we later see another meeting of the Blue Ribbon parents meeting with Dr. Caldecott, who says that they approached Drip Stillwell's parents to try and get him into the Blue Ribbons. His parents, unfortunately, said no. So they couldn't get the number one student who, of course, is going to be the valedictorian. But it just so happens that a member of the Blue Ribbons is the number two student. So the next day, the Blue Ribbons ask Drip Stillwell to come out skating with them on a frozen lake. Oh, Jesus. They send him out towards the end. He sinks into the water and the Blue Ribbons have a grand time reaching out their hands to pull him out and then pulling it back right before he can get a hold of it. So they watch him drown. Steve witnesses this and gets Drip out of there, but is unable to resuscitate him. Oh, So again, it's another indicator of the degrees to which the Blue Ribbons are willing to go to make sure they have the complete run of the place. The, The script also makes it much more overt that they're basically converting everybody in the school because part of them establishing the various cliques in the school, the motorheads, the hippies and whatnot, is you see those groups dwindle throughout the movie to the point that by the end there isn't anybody the location to which you always see the hippies by the end of the film all you see is this frisbee where they usually hang out Ah. there's no people there huh and then the movie also establishes that the sequence where steve is apprehended at his home that occurs the night of prom and the following day is graduation and i mentioned the prom sequence because there's a lot of bits and pieces leading up to it but this one of the more amusing bits of the script that was cut Steve and Rachel are off investigating, and there's a sequence in the gymnasium during the prom where this band is playing, according to the screenplay, the band, who's named the Midwich Cuckoos, are a ragtag bunch of rockers, jamming a pretty awesome cover of Kiss's prom night staple, Rock and Roll All Night. During the solo, the lead singer goes over to the bassist. What's up with this? Do do we suck or something? Because the prom consists entirely of blue ribbons who are not reacting to the music. It notes they stand there hovering, buzzing around in little clusters, huddled in little groups, gargoyles in evening wear, won't dance, don't ask them. Wow. Wow. So I thought it was this amusing little gag of this band going, do we suck? Because it's just this (laughs) prom of zombies standing there. So I really wish that little humorous nugget was left in. That's hilarious. And yeah, if you want to look it up, the script is not hard to find. You can find it online. And yeah, they... (laughs) This movie was really gutted in its second and third act. Yeah, it's the theatrical version. While I enjoy it, is not a particularly good or sensical movie. But if you put the deleted scenes in and you get an idea of what they were going for and what the director actually wanted, I think there's a really good movie lurking in there. But I still enjoy it. I still like it. I I really enjoy this movie. Maybe that's nostalgia or something, but it's just a fun sci-fi horror teen action flick. Plus, it's got the song Monster Side in it, which is by Addict, which is a British four-piece that wasn't actually around very long. But their drummer was a guy named Luke Bullen, and Luke Bullen ended up playing with Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. And he was on their third album, Streetcore, which is one of my all-time favorite albums. He also was playing with him at the end at one of the my favorite like bootleg concerts, which was the Acton Town Hall show, nice. which was the last time Strummer played with Mick Jones gets up on stage during the bank robber nice at the end and that's the the last time they play together so this movie has a direct connection to one of my favorite moments in rock and roll history so i appreciate that he was also married to KT Tunstall which seems pretty cool oh, wow. they're not anymore but huh go on Luke Bullen very fun to keep it brief i'm very met on the film overall i think it has a couple inherent problems one is 
for as punchy as the script is, I think Scott Rosenberg's attempt to write teens doesn't entirely click. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And then I think David Nutter is too reserved and stoic in its execution of it, where you have this kind of very austere direction for this very kind of dynamic script. And it's times it kind of feels at odds where it feels like David Nutter's doing an X-Files episode for a movie that shouldn't necessarily feel like an X-Files episode. So I don't dislike it, but I'm very mixed on it. But of all the movies we're discussing tonight, this is the movie that I would be interested in seeing a remake of because I would really like to play with the concept of what a blue ribbon would be in contemporary society, given the updated standards of what is Americana. Yeah, that would be really disturbing, which plays into something Jake mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. So I think there's something to mine there. I think that would be a movie that would not be popular in large swaths of the country. (laughs) No, (laughs) but I would enjoy it. Well, that brings us to our Hammer movie, I guess. Not Hammer Horror, but, you know, the big bat in the lineup, which is The Faculty, which is, as far as I'm concerned, 1998's just about best movie. I love this movie so much. I love it more now that I'm going to be hung up thinking of the Hammer regulars playing The Faculty in it, and Christopher <laughs> Lee, Peter Cushing. <laughs> I mean... Robert Patrick isn't that far from Christopher Lee. He's like a young, crazier version. <laughs> Texting Christopher Lee. Yeah, I, I unreservedly loved this movie. I always have, from the moment I saw it. It was just, to me, what's the line from um, Love Actually? To me, you are perfect. Yeah. That's how I feel about the faculty. It's one of those movies that's in my canon for like, it's not as good as something like Dazed and Confused or Gross Point Blank, but to me, it's just as watchable. It's fantastic, and it has, I think, a lot to do with the cast that comes to it. The cast is just stunning. I mean, this movie has Jordana Brewster, Clay Duvall, Josh Hartnett, Salma Hayek, Famke Jensen, B.B. Newworth, Robert Patrick, Usher, John Stewart, Elijah Wood, and, be still my heart, Piper Laurie. I have had the biggest crush hey. of Piper Laurie for the longest, longest time. Wonderful, amazing That woman. tracks. so i looked into it and i was like you know this has to have a lot to do with the casting directors i was like who the hell put this team together and it was ann mccarthy and mary vernu and especially ann mccarthy i think i'm gonna be a huge fan of because she was responsible for casting movies like dr sleep haunting of hill house and midnight mass (laughs) another flanagan connection nice yes (laughs) so she's very good at her job she is is very good at her job (laughs) if there was a making of she would be this movie's version of the line producer from born yes (laughs) star of the show you get the big nickel (laughs) that's a callback to our bonus episode on the movie born which you should probably listen to because it's a modern classic of sorts it's better to listen to our episode than it is to watch the movie. <laughs> In episode six and seven. And then funnily enough, amazing cast on this, but of all the folks you mentioned, none of those are the actors that first made me break out all caps in my notes. The actor who first made me break out all caps was Daniel Von Bargen. Yes! Yes! Mr. Tate. Whereas it's like, it's the dude from Lord of Illusions! I, Only I, Swan <laughs> is worthy! I had to go back in my notes and put in his character name everywhere where it said Lord of Illusions. Because <laughs> that's the only way I identified him for the entire film until it was over. Wow, do I have a different take on that particular actor than you guys. Really? Because as soon as I saw him, I was like, I like you. 
and she's not my cousin because he was the other chief in Super Troopers. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. oh, God, I don't even remember. Awesome. <laughs> That's where I come at him from. Is that, in fact, that was the community connection I wrote down. Because Daniel Von Bargen, he played John Tate in this, and he was Chief Grady in Super Troopers, which was directed by Jay Chandrasekhar, and who was also in it. So they co-starred in the movie together. And, and Jay Chandrasekhar directed nine episodes of Community, as well as starring in one as the uh, comedian that nobody wants have perform at the school because he's too awful, basically. Well, that's a bit of a stretch, bro. I'll give it to you. Well, no, there's also <laughs> another more direct one because Robert Patrick was actually in an episode of Community, and I had forgotten that while I was writing this es- this esoteric bullshit down. That I'll give you. <laughs> that's an official win here. Okay, good. <laughs> he's only in it for like nine seconds. It's a late season episode, too, where Annie and Jonathan Banks uh, are going around the school working up the bureaucracy, and he's the parking guy. And he explains that his power comes from people not doing ride shares. So that's why he wants control of the bulletin board content. (laughs) (laughs) He's not in it very long. And I had forgotten he was there. And like I said, I was like, oh, here's a good community connection. No, one of the stars of this movie was in the stupid show. (laughs) But nonetheless, they're the two big community connections for this episode. Well, one and a half. I'll give you one and a half connections. Twice removed. It's one step removed. (laughs) That's that's removed enough. For the Jay Tranches car. Just saying. I expect better from you. <laughs> it's going to be real impressive with whatever connection he pulls out for episode 10. Oh, my God. I can't wait. <laughs> I I can wait. I can wait. This guy's sister's cousin's former wait. roommate. Episode 10, the episode Jacob is not on. I think Jake's going to like it more than he thinks. Yeah, I've heard that from you before, and that doesn't end well for me every time. I'm so excited. <laughs> So this is brought to us by Miramax, who have also brought us The Perfection, The New Halloween, and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, one of my personal favorites. Love that movie. And Dimension Films, which brought us Apollo 18, Horns, and The Wizard of Gore remake. (laughs) (laughs) Do you just go through lists and say, well, they're embarrassed about this one, they're embarrassed about this one? (laughs) When you say The Perfection, do you mean the recent Perfection? Yeah, the one we really enjoyed. Yeah, that was a good movie. It was a damn fine movie. That came up on our, if you follow us on Twitter, we were discussing that the other day. It's worth watching. It has some really good turns in it that I didn't see coming and I really enjoyed. You know, it's actually probably on par with that. The faculty. For quality? Sure. (laughs) Just bringing it back before we get too far afield. Which opens with your community connection, Robert Patrick. Yeah, it opens with the football scene and the uh, offspring playing. The kids are all right. That music kicked up. And I was like, oh, I love it. I'm already I there. I just get excited every time. Well, here I am a <laughs> 90s kid, and <laughs> yep. it doesn't take much, but The Offspring nope. are one of those bands. This is one of the few music pieces that really got me excited because I, while I wasn't big into Offspring, because again, my finger was way off the pulse, my high school friends were way into Offspring. And every time I rode with them somewhere, they were always playing Offspring in the car. Hell yeah. So I have this heavy association of Offspring with high school. So hearing them again, it was like, hey! I still listen to Offspring. I put it on every so often. It's great. It's not every pseudo-punk band that has a lead singer who's way smarter than everybody who's listening to their album. (laughs) That'd be Dexter Holland. He's like a physicist or something. I forget. And their sound makes an interesting counterpoint to Robert Patrick's parade of profanity and destruction <laughs> as he lays waste to the sidelines of football practice i'm just gonna destroy everything robert patrick is unpleasant 
in this film. Consider yourselves dead Friday night! Dead! <laughs> he attacks a goddamn sprinkler. <laughs> it's one thing to knock the bench over, but he's attacking, like, school property. <laughs> yeah, and then he attacks the principal. That is true. But just before that, there's a teacher's meeting where the principal played by B.B. Newworth, is basically just, it is literally, this school is the most pathetic school I have ever seen portrayed <laughs> in a film. She's like, there will be no new computers. There will be no field trips. There'll be no money for a musical. But yes, football will get everything. And the teachers are just all beaten and just ragged. And like, I mean, and each one of their eyes just betrays the sign, this is what my life has become. <laughs> well, like even within that, like it's the oldest teacher there asking for new computers. You know, when they talk about the drama thing, she says in a little bit that they can use the repurpose that's set from our town. The kids had their hearts set on guys and dolls. She said, well, you used the set from our town last well, year. But <laughs> now, and I assume this is why they said it, and I'm not a drama guy, but doesn't our town not actually have a set? Yes, correct. Okay. <laughs> that's fantastic. I did not know that. <laughs> See, and I thought that it was like, either this is a funny joke or I'm dumb. Oh, my God. I appreciate that a lot more now. <laughs> and like we said, the movie starts with Robert Patrick throwing a fit and some guys walking off the football field and then him cursing while he's cleaning stuff up, turning around saying, well, what do you want? And they don't show you who that is. And then they have this teacher's meeting. And then the next scene is the principal, Bibi Newworth, going back in for her keys and Robert Patrick showing up behind her and being creepy as hell. Kind of just like cornering her in the office, asking for a pencil over and over again. It's uncomfortable. It is. And it's the most overtly horror sequence in this film, I would say. Uh, it's up there. Yeah, it's one of them. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. He has her cornered. He's being very overt about her appearance, where he says, you look very, very pretty tonight, Miss Drake. And then she finally says, here's a goddamn pencil. And he runs it right through her hand and mm -hmm. has the quip and says, I've always wanted to do that. It's like, pencil stigmata? That's awfully specific. <laughs> <laughs> she, of course, has had her keys in the standard defensive position where they're sticking out of her fist and slashes them across his face. And she tries to get out of school, but someone has chained the doors. And as she struggles to open them, we see Miss Olsen, played by Piper Laurie, on the other side, basically saying she's locked outside, she can't help. And so the principal has to go back to the office to get her keys, which, of course, turns into a race. Yeah, it's a big chase scene. And then she finally gets back you know, to the doors and he's coming down and she's trying to unlock it. And she finally, in the last second, unlocks it, goes outside, locks it, and drops the scissors, which Piper Laurie picks up and then stabs her. Yep. Saying, I always wanted to do that. It's a really well done scene. There's some high tension involved there. Like You're not entirely sure who the uh, assailant is yet, why these people have suddenly turned on the principal, what's going on here. Left with a lot of questions. Yeah, and like I said, it is an overtly horror-oriented scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with some jokes, but it moves well. It's peppy. Yeah, it's it's a pretty strong opening. And I think we mentioned that this was written by Kevin Williamson, right? Yes. Yes. Which is the Dawson Creek connection. <laughs> hey. All four films threaded by Dawson's Creek. <laughs> and it's interesting because it has this kind of opening before the credits, much like Scream does. Mm-hmm. A victim is singled out, all alone, being chased. Yeah. Yeah. But also the most distinctly horrific scene in both movies is the pre-credit scene, I think. 
Yeah, it's the kind of formula to try to hit them hard at first and then just try to maintain that emotion throughout. You know, you don't need to hit them like that again. You just need to keep bumping that back up to the top. Nope. Then it cuts to the next morning. It's when they, all the kids are coming to the school, Oh, right? my God. Yeah, so now we got the parade of protagonists. When we get introduced to the uh, fucked up breakfast club. But it got started off with what I was super excited about was the Alice in Chains cover, just another brick in the wall. I was like, oh, yeah, baby. Now we're talking. Not Alice in Chains. It is. It's Lane Staley, but it's not yeah. Alice in Chains. It's a super group called Class of 99. No shit. I mean, I knew the voice. I didn't realize it was a super group. All right, so here we go. Uh, another <laughs> Brick in the Wall, part one and part two covers were done by Class of 99, which is a super group that came together to record the covers. Lane Staley is the vocalist. It was actually his final studio recording uh, before he died in 2002. Uh, on guitar is Tom Morello. Ooh who is the lead guitarist of Rage Against the Machine. Hell yeah, he is. Stephen Perkins, which was Jane's Addiction's drummer. Nice. Martin Lenoble of Porno for Pyro's bassist, uh. who happens to be married to Christina Applegate. Huh. Which doesn't matter at all to this, but I was happy to hear it. <laughs> Fascinating. And then a guy named Matt Serlitic, who was the keyboardist, and I didn't find too much interesting about him. There's actually a video for their cover, and the video has Clea Duvall, Elijah Wood, Sean Hatosi, and Jordana Brewster in it. Nice. And it's one of actually a couple covers in this because the I'm 18 that you hear later, which is a uh, Alice Cooper cover, is by Creed. So we're not going to talk about that one too much. Uh, <laughs> and the other Alice Cooper cover is of School's Out, which is actually by Soul Asylum. And over the cred the end credits is a cover of Changes, the David Bowie song, which is by Sean Mullins, who you might remember from Lullaby. Fun. I don't know why 90s horror soundtracks featured so many covers but they do and it's weird <laughs> but actually uh, since i'm on the music i might as well get this out of my system now before we get too far into the movie the faculty trailer uses another alice cooper cover of schools out did you happen to watch the trailer no, no. it's another cover which is by another super group called the last hard men which is made up of Skid Row vocalist Sebastian Bach, the Frogs guitarist Jimmy Flemian, nice. the Breeders guitarist and vocalist Kelly Deal, who's Kim Deal's sister. Cool. Kim Deal being from the Pixies. And Smashing Pumpkins drummer Jimmy Chamberlain. Kelly Deal was in the Breeders with her sister, as well as Tanya Donnelly from Belly, who's one of my favorite bands. Mm. What's funny about this is this song, this version of School's Out, was recorded for the Scream soundtrack. Hmm. And it's on the Scream soundtrack. But it's not in this movie Scream, nor is it in this movie, but it is heavily featured in the trailer. Huh. <laughs> so they actually used a song from the Scream soundtrack for the trailer of The Faculty. Fun. Huh. That's kind of like our episode on People Under the Stairs, which featured a song called Do the Right Thing, which was written for Do the Right Thing, but not used in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> so it's essentially, for this film, there are two different schools out covers and one I'm 18 cover. So Alice Cooper is well represented. He's just not the one singing any of his songs in the movie. All right. Which is funny because they do use the Alice Cooper actual version in Scream. <laughs> <laughs> so again, who was ever in charge of soundtracks in the 90s was doing all of the 80s leftover cocaine. <laughs> I feel like it has to be like a production level choice. Like they're like, these songs are perfect for these moments. But Honestly, we want modern bands, modern bands for the teenagers to appreciate. So we get the modern bands to do the perfect songs. You know, that's just my theory. I listened to them. The Creed cover is not great. I'm not a big Creed fan, but the Soul Asylum cover, and I do like Soul Asylum, but that cover yeah. is just, yeah. 
I do like the Pink Floyd cover, the Another Brick in the Wall, it's which good. is funny because that's also the last song in Disturbing Behavior. Yes. It's what he's singing as he goes over the cliff. Everything's connected. So really, there's about eight songs about high school that were recorded in the 70s that the 90s decided this is our fucking soundtrack. Yep. <laughs> Jason Confused had the Alice Cooper song in it. Yep. Like Really, every school that features bad students has schools out, I think. I think it's just contractually obligated in Hollywood to use that song. It's It's too perfect. And... Again, because we're already down this road, and I've got a bunch of music notes for this, but we're just going to bring it up here. The intro is, it starts out with the Another Brick in the Wall cover, and it starts introducing the students. Then it stops, and it starts playing Helpless by D-Generation when it introduces Zeke as he comes driving up. So it starts the Another Brick in the Wall, stops it, starts playing Helpless by the D-Generation. D-Generation is one of Jesse Mallon's old bands, and Jesse Mallon is one of my all-time favorites. So, like, we've got the Boston's, we've got the Clash, Joe Strummer, Belly, and Jesse Mallon, all covered in these four movies, which makes me incredibly happy. It's all downhill for you after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so Jesse Mallon, helpless. na 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 And then we get right back to Another Brick in the Wall by the class of 99 for a movie that was in 98. <laughs> and I, I love these intros. I love the way it, it puts their name on the screen and pauses yes. for a second. It's like a Mentos commercial gone wrong. It's, I just, it's very 90s. I find it delightful. Yeah. First up is Zeke, played by Josh Hartnett, who comes peeling in in his 1970 Pontiac GTO, which must be pretty roomy because later in the movie, six people pile into it. <laughs> He starts loading up his jacket with, like, obvious drugs. Like, it's... Yes. <laughs> like, show a big neon sign above his head that says, I am a drug dealer. <laughs> also, pornography and X-lax. For and condoms. reasons passing understanding. <laughs> yes, he is a one-stop pharmacy. Specifically with a designer drug called Scat, which, man, even if I was desperate in high school, I was like, fucking called Scat? Fuck no. <laughs> you know what's something else i like about this is they talk about him having flunked his senior year and repeating it and his introduction is very similar to o'banion in dazed and confused where he peels in in his car you know does all this stuff and then he shows him did you hear banion flunk yeah what a dumb shit and you get kind of a variation on this and it's funny because some of the people he first interacts with is what's his face from that 70s show and the kid from Days to Confused. Mm -hmm. And they are credited in the credits as fuck up one and fuck up two. But Willie Wiggins is fuck up number two. And clearly he should have been fuck up number one because, you know, he was the model for the main character in Everybody Wants Some. I don't think they're uh, fuck up. I think they're fucked up because they're drug users. No, it, it's fuck up. Okay. And fuck up one and two in the credits. It's kind of like the girl and the guy who are always beating on her are fuck you, fuck you guy, guy fuck, fuck you girl. girl. <laughs> Again, everything about this movie is great. So first up is Zeke, as we mentioned, the human pharmacy, followed by Casey, played by Elijah Wood, and who is steps off the school bus and is very quickly taken out by a pretty nice spinning back elbow right to the bridge of his <laughs> yep. nose. Which he then apologized for. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> So the second time I was watching this, when he gets off and it does that and he's standing there, my wife happened to be in the room and she goes, oh, hey, Elijah Wood, as Elijah Wood at any point in his life. <laughs> <laughs> and I never really thought of Elijah Wood as not aging, but I guess it's kind of true. It's not far off. Hobbits are long lived. 
But yeah, he he has a, a rough first couple of minutes on this school day. Yep. Then they introduce uh, Stokely, played by Clay Duvall. Uh, she's Yay. like your stereotypical goth character. You know, lots of makeup and, and black. Followed by Delilah, played by Jordana Brewster, who is the popular girl cheerleader kind of holding court over her little uh, minions. She also happens to be the editor-in-chief as well. Yep. And then we meet Stan, played by Sean Hatosi, who is her football boyfriend. Yeah, he's the starting quarterback. Yeah. And from Frederick, Maryland. Oh, really? Nice. Nice. (laughs) What I like about it is that they are a one-to-one match to the Breakfast Club. Oh, I didn't notice that. Oh, I hadn't considered that. (laughs) Not surprising. (laughs) Which is then followed by Mary Beth, who's played by Laura Harris, who I've loved since Dead Like Me, personally. She's uh, the new girl, and she's trying to befriend Stokely momentarily. It's quick. doesn't go very well. Then, of course, turn to Zeke, who's selling licenses and drugs in the bathroom. Nope. Two, fuck up one, and fuck up two. Yep. While poor Elijah Wood is in the uh, the stall bleeding. And that's when you really finish the intros. That's when you, This is the people we're going to be following as our main protagonists. Another fun music note real quick. When you see Elijah Wood in the stall, right above his head is the graffiti that's Tito and the Tarantula. Tito and the Tarantula is an actual band. They're friends of Robert <laughs> Rodriguez. Nice. And their song, After Dark, is the one playing when Selma Hayek does her famous dance scene in From Dusk Till Dawn. Badass. Oh, nice. Badass. Okay. She doesn't dance as much in this movie. Mostly she just sniffles and then dies. Yeah, it's a small part for her. <laughs> when they're walking in, Mary Beth asks where the office is. The girl she asks with the nose ring is Robert Rodriguez's daughter. Oh, nice. That's badass. So yeah, next we're introduced to the faculty lounge and we're introduced to <laughs> Selma Hayek's character, who is the school nurse who has come to work sick, which takes on a whole new context today than it did at the time. Yes. Yep. She is also bandaging the hand of our Harry Knowles cameo of all things, which is how I first heard about this I know, right? Because this was in the early days of Ain't It Cool News when it was first taking off. So when I saw this part, because I watched this first out of the four films that we were watching for this episode, I was surprised to see him there because in my mind, I had forgotten he was in this and thought he was a teacher in disturbing behavior. Ah. I don't know why my brain did that, but it did. So I was like, oh, he's in this one? Which was quickly followed by, well, then who the fuck is in disturbing behavior? <laughs> also in the room is uh, Mr. Tate, played by Daniel Von Bargen from Lord of Illusions. Oh, and God, Super Troopers. I, only Swan is worthy. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I, I need to go watch that movie like as soon as we're done doing this. <laughs> I've never seen it. You can't watch it until we watch it together. <laughs> okay. so I'll just good. go watch Super Troopers then. That seems fair. We should do a comedy episode once. Just one. <laughs> He's not doing well. He he is giving up on life. He's in the teacher's lounge, like filling up his thermos with booze. <laughs> <laughs> Which was front page news in the school newspaper previously, and nobody gave a shit. Apparently, they mentioned later. <laughs> we already broke that story. Nobody cared. <laughs> There's a lot of ennui and bitterness here in small town Ohio. The only really disturbing thing is the coach is in here and he just keeps chugging water after water after water. And I'm very thirsty. John Stewart comes in and he has that line where he just whispers, man, coach is thirsty. And it's like, <laughs> are you turned on by this? Because it sounds like you're a little turned on by that. <laughs> it's, it's the weirdest delivery in the entire film. And the last teacher we see is uh, Mrs. Olsen, played by Piper Laurie, who walks in, now all gussied up. Like, she just dressed real nice, got some makeup, her hair done. Yes. Decidedly different outfit. Yes. So this is the point in my notes where 
so I'd seen this movie once before back when it hit HBO or something like that, but it'd been a long time, but I remembered the, the gist of the creatures and their nature in this film. I had forgotten the bit about a lot of the folks that they possess changing their looks. Yep. So at this point, I started referring to them in my notes as the glamour guppies because (laughs) (laughs) a, because when we see their true form and the shape it is, it's vaguely guppy shaped and they even swim Mm -hmm. around in an aquarium at one point. And their whole shtick is apparently when we're done with you, you're not going to be you anymore, but the new you is going to look fantastic. That's right. (laughs) They are all about giving makeovers to their hosts because they do it with Famke Jansen, who we'll get to shortly. Same thing. It's the alien eye for the straight guy. (laughs) <laughs> yes nice <laughs> they're like the fish blue ribbons yeah <laughs> so we've just been introduced to all the teachers in the teacher's lounge when we cut to Vampy jensen's class she's playing mrs burke and she's currently teaching them about robinson crusoe calluses <laughs> yeah so she asks a question about robinson crusoe and zeke who is you know while also a fuck up but he's supposedly very smart and this is where they start to show that the first answer he gives is calluses, talking about Robin Caruso's island love life. <laughs> and then she says, no, that's not right. And he answers in a much better, more thought out way. Basically saying that like his greatest fear was isolation. Yeah. Yeah. He's obviously like smart, but he doesn't respect anyone. He doesn't feel like he has to meet anyone's expectations. So he's just going to use his brains to his own advantage and screw what people are hoping he's capable of. And a lot of this is just people trying to break these stereotypes. Like, he's not just your school drug dealer. He's like this big brain who's never found the right way to actualize himself. And we get that same kind of thing with Stan, the football quarterback. Because he's decided to quit football because he actually wants to earn college with his brains, not his brawn. Which immediately backfires on him as Delilah's like, well, I guess we're done. (laughs) Delilah's, that's not how stereotypes work, you idiot. Who has the line, what am I supposed to do while you're on a yellow brick quest for a brain? Like, they keep going through these, like, little segments of their life. It's not even really dealing with the threat that's upon us yet. You know, the next scene is, like, Mr. Tate, as he's tiredly teaching history and social studies. And he starts trying to start a chapter. Like, I'm sorry, we did that chapter, you know, last week. We're on this chapter now. And his response is, whatever. <laughs> it's It's honestly, you know, looking at the beginning of this film alone... And not getting into the deeper levels of the students. You'd always be like, you know what? I think uh, I'm okay with the invader in this part. (laughs) (laughs) This entire town needs a little chlorine. (laughs) It's kind of a broader theme in the movie in that every message this movie puts forth is horrible. Mm -hmm. Yes. Horrible. (laughs) It's, I mean, we'll get into it a little bit towards the end, but yeah. This is not uh, Love Wins kind of movie. (laughs) (laughs) not an 80s morality play no it's very much uh, persistence (laughs) don't give up (laughs) that's about it (laughs) that's the best positive i can give you out there and next we see the classroom of john stewart who is as mentioned previously is playing dr edward furlong who is the (laughs) biology teacher and one of the things i appreciated about this movie was the fact that in this school like my school the bio teacher was the cool teacher so I thought that was yep. entertaining. Yep. I was like, hey, the bio teacher is always the teacher that all the kids <laughs> like. Who gets to swear in front of the students? Edward Furlong is a... Isn't it a reference to Terminator? Uh, yeah, it'd be the actor. Yeah, we were Furlong. Yeah. yeah, there's a bunch of Terminator references laced throughout this for reasons I don't quite get, but they're there. It was popular at the time. But yeah, you know, he's the happy-go-lucky science teacher. And earlier, Casey had found in the field this weird kind of uh, 
almost like a pupa cocoon, <laughs> if you yeah. will. He's like, I don't know what the hell this is. This looks particularly odd. That's after the coach chases him off the field. Yes. Because he's in the stands drinking a juice box. Yeah. <laughs> apple juice juice box. And of all the Namby Pamby stuff about Elijah Wood in this, drinking an apple juice box is probably the top. I just, I. <laughs> yeah. The coach is like, hey, you know, why don't you get into sports? And he's like, I only run if I'm chased. And the coach is like, ha <laughs> Well, they were to be chased. I like that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> so noted. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he takes this cocoon to Professor Furlong, who immediately tries to figure out what it is. He thinks it's something like a squid or maybe an octopi type species, which is particularly weird since they're in the middle of fucking Ohio. <laughs> but it is a uh, pelagic or sea dwelling organism for certain. Definitely thinks he found a new species. They squirt it with some water, and it wakes right the hell up. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, that's fascinating. And they take it to the aquarium, they put it in, and it grows these, like, cilia and becomes, like, aggressive. Like, the teacher reaches in to, like, kind of grab for it, and the damn thing bites him right through the glove into his finger. I like that he's bleeding his finger, and he kind of looks around the room and goes, I'm fine. <laughs> but I think the more disturbing part, actually, like, the bite, you know, is just a bite. That's... You know, any animal can do that. But someone puts their hand up on the glass and the cilia kind of like shapes to form the hand. Yep. Almost as if it was like matching it. I was like, ooh, that's creepy. The monster designs, at least the original concept designs, were actually done by Bernie Wrightson. Nice. I was about to make a joke. I was like, whatever Jake's about to say, I'm going to have to say, oh, I was expecting you to say Bernie Wrightson. I wasn't actually expecting you to say Bernie Wrightson. (laughs) (laughs) But that makes sense because he has come up four times on this podcast so far in previous episodes, as he should, because he's amazing. Yep. Yeah, he designed the creatures. I actually looked at some of the original design he had done, the drawings for the larger creature you see later in the film, and they're they're pretty cool. I like the design a lot. I particularly like in this scene the way it opens its mouth and shows the teeth. Yes. Because you get a close-up and it's these four little hooks come out and draw its mouth back in like a smile, and then the teeth chomps on it. It's a quick little effect, but I thought it was a pretty neat monster effect. No, anytime they go the extra mile and... Get those minute details with creature design. Sell me every time. <laughs> Sold. Oh, Bernie Wrightson's the guy for that. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a fun scene because, you know, it's like, well, what the hell is this? And everybody sort of reacts almost appropriately for finding some weird ass squid in the field in Ohio. <laughs> it's, it's actually it's funny because the movie was filmed in Texas. And like, I know they said it in Ohio to make, you know, basically reference about it being, you know, anywhere middle of the country, which is why you would ever said anything in Ohio. But I think it would have worked just fine in Texas. No, it's a little too close to the water. Someone can almost say, well, you know, someone probably just trucked it in or something by accident, you know, but in the middle of Ohio, it is unlikely. I feel like they said it here just for this one line. I mean, there's Lake Erie in Ohio. <laughs> also, the fact is that, you it's know, big lake, that it, great lake. In it fact. makes sense that without giving too much away that this thing would target the middle of the landmass, you know, with the intention of spreading. They even say why later. Well, that, that that's. That's the roughest part of the movie for me, but we'll get to that. <laughs> Before then, Ugh. we get Stan in the shower. I didn't care for this scene. So, yes, Stan is in the shower, has soap suds in his eye, becomes vaguely aware of a figure who's in the room with him, calls out to find out who it is, clears his eyes, turns around, and it is a nude Miss Burke, one of the teachers at the school. And she's stating, you know, help me, help me, and is obviously in a traumatized state. She says that they're they're taking over, they're coming to get us, something along those lines. 
and she kind of stumbles into his arms. He half embraces her, goes to pat her on her head with his hand, and then pulls his hand away, and her scalp comes with it. It's unpleasant. And this uh, actually happens after the exchange with Stan and the coach, where Stan's like, I'm quitting. And the coach says the most awkward thing. I love that. <laughs> you know, it reminded me of Steve Buscemi going, hello, fellow students you know, from community. <laughs> but he's just like, he says, I'm quitting. And the coach is like, okay, I'm not standing in the way of the human condition. What kind of a human being would I be if I did that? It's <laughs> <laughs> just before he goes, he goes, wow, something's up with that. Yeah. And then he continues. I'm like, it feels like these lines are out of order. <laughs> Which, I mean, he's an alien, so I guess it makes sense. You know, it's funny. I like, I like the scene. I like the little speech he gives because it's just awkward enough to be weird and just different enough from what we've seen from him mm-hmm. that it's concerning. But then Stan goes into the shower and the way he showers bothers me every time. And I've seen this movie a lot. The showering? Yes. Maybe maybe I'm the only one, but do you soap up your face and hair at the same time and just stare into the shower as soon as you get into a shower? Do you just go... (laughs) We're on a video chat so they can see what I just did. You can't, but you can watch the movie and see how showered, you know. Not that way, no. (laughs) I'm usually the get all wet first kind of guy and then start applying soap as needed. Yeah, but I don't do my face directly in the stream of water. Why not? Because I saw arachnophobia as a little kid, and I like to be able to see when I'm in the shower. I I, I don't mind. It's very soothing and cathartic to have the water in your face. I don't like to immediately blind myself. I don't like blinding myself at all in the shower. Because, again, that's where the spiders get you. Okay, I feel where you're coming from, but since I still do it, I do it first to get it out of the way. Because I feel like as you stay in the the shower longer, things become more harrowing. (laughs) <laughs> like it's irrational but you are safer for explain that. no it's like you know it should anything go wrong should actually there be some god-awful monster or killer or whatever in the house or someone's going to come get you or prank you even something as mundane as that they're not going to do it within the first 30 seconds to like you know two or three minutes of when you get in the shower they're gonna wait until you're in the middle of it not expecting it not hearing them coming and they're going to take time to get ready or they need to break in you know so for that first window is your safe window you get in, you take care of your face, and then you're ready no matter what happens as you work through it. Oh, see, I never thought of it that way. I, I just like to have my guard up the entire time I'm in the shower. <laughs> this is the most oddball conversation <laughs> I think we've ever had. <laughs> I'm not even lying. There, I, it was probably six months after I saw arachnophobia before I could take a shower without a washcloth covering the drain while I was in there. It was a very disturbing scene. Great movie. I don't do well with spiders. They forced me to watch that movie, and I just had... It was a bad couple of months. I still, to this day, sometimes think about it when I'm putting on my shoes. Uh, Oh, yeah. I like to shake my shoes before I put them on. Yeah. Related. Arachnophobia is one of three or so movies I will not do for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Just throwing that out there. So the teachers quickly write off the older teacher's death as cancer. Everyone's just kind of freaked out by it. We get a scene of the coach standing, just standing in the sprinklers, just kind of getting drenched. And then we cut to uh, Zeke selling videos for his car trunk when Famke Jensen comes up to uh, call him out on it. They're like, you know, you're, you're better than this. You don't need, you know, you, I know the kind of brain you have. You shouldn't be doing this. And he comes at her hard. You yes. know, first, you know, saying that, you know, maybe she has some laxatives, you know, kind of like saying, you got to stick up your ass. And she's just disappointed at him. And since she's not letting down, he comes in for like the low blow and says, I can also offer you some cherry flavored condoms. 
At which point she's just done, you know, and she turns and walks away. And you can see it in his face. Like he's kind of embarrassed and disappointed in himself even. He's like, he got what he wanted, but at what cost? Like, what, what, what am I doing here? That's the kind of expression he's giving. Peddling party of prettiness, apparently, <laughs> featuring Nev Campbell and Jennifer. <laughs> this is one of the scenes I always have trouble with because no matter what you do costume-wise to Famke Jansen, she's still Famke Jansen. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't buy it. It's the only part of the movie I don't buy. I get what they're trying to do. I get the idea. But in terms of suspending disbelief, that's that's... Too far for me. She's another character who gets glamour guppied here shortly. And it's in this case, it's like, that's not as big of a leap as the movie wants you to think it is. <laughs> it is very funny, though. Well, particularly her outfit, which she has later in the film. So mirroring this scene that she has next to Zeke in the car, there's a sequence later in the film where she approaches Zeke, who's again standing next to his Pontiac GTO, except this is the glamoured up Famke Jansen, who is wearing a black coat with a red top, which matches the color scheme of his car, which is black with red stripes. <laughs> there are, in fact, some uncomfortable overtones to their student-teacher relationship throughout this movie. Just a smidge. All the way to the end. <laughs> All the way to the end. So, yeah, at this point, we see large water jugs being brought into the school. Dan and Springwater. Yep. Water is becoming a huge theme here. Just water is constantly being cycled into this environment and it's always in the background like there's always a like a line at the water fountains or you know everybody's standing around the water cooler it's like at one point a water you know a truck goes by with mm -hmm. water on it and it's actually kind of funny after a while oh yeah but then we cut to casey and delilah they're breaking the teacher's lounge looking for a story they want to get another tale out this is where they come to the joke about mr tate being an alcoholic like oh we already did that last year nobody cared they have a flirty moment um, I forget what it is exactly, but Elijah says something that Delilah's like, oh. <laughs> he basically says you can be a pretty cool person when you're not being a bitch. That's right. That catches her eye. That might be the exact line. I've seen this a lot. It's pretty close. Right. <laughs> but then they hear the teacher's coming, and so they decide to hide in the closet. Mrs. Olsen and the coach come in and immediately start drinking water. She splashes the damn thing in her face. <laughs> like, Instantly. Like, drinking's not going to do. I just need this on me now. And they say that the climate here makes them impulsive. Yeah, compromises their nervous system. Yeah. Seems to imply that they need it wet. They need it cold. A dry heat is, is not doing them well. Yeah. And to explain Mrs. Brummel's incident in the shower where her scalp fell off, they were trying to implant her with one of these glamour guppies. But in her case, as we find out, her body was too old and the heat got to her is the explanation yep. that we get. Didn't take. They also mentioned at this point that almost all the faculty are simulated at this point. And then when they're done that, the students will be soon. Yes. And then Nurse Harper, played by Salma Hayek, comes in, and like clockwork, you know, Miss Olsen just walks over, locks the door, the coach and Mrs. Olsen uh, hold the nurse down, and there's this kind of really good effect scene where, like, uh, the coach's mouth just kind of distends a bit, he's got the, all these, like, veins that kind of pop out, and shroom, Glamour Guppy shoots right out like a gun into her ear. Which, given how intense Robert Patrick is, it might not have been makeup. They might have just said strain. <laughs> Every vein in his face pops out two inches. You do you, Bob. Two <laughs> items on this. One, the special effects on this generally hold up quite well. Yes. Yeah. Surprisingly so. Even the CGI stuff holds up pretty well. The second thing, so this whole sequence is being witnessed by Casey and Delilah, who have ducked into a closet and are looking through the slats in the door and watching all this transpire. And Casey 
you know, who had a quip to Delilah just a little bit ago, which she actually responded positively to, decides, all right, I'm going to take the next logical step in trying to flirt with this girl, which is put your nose two centimeters away from her and take a big whiff. <laughs> it's the sequence. He sniffs her deliver, and it is so creepy the way he does uh, it. It's just... Remember, this character was drinking an apple juice box in high school not too long ago in this movie. <laughs> Nothing surprises me. Teenagers are the worst. Your flirting technique needs work. As if what's happening to the nurse wasn't disturbing enough, um, at that point, the body of the older woman in the closet shifts onto them. They're like, ah! They jump out, the teachers look up, they push past the teachers, run out in the hallway. The nurse tries to grab Delilah, but she kicks free. They run into the hallway and go directly into the principal and Mr. Tate, both of which are clearly converted. And while they try to say, you know, check on the teacher, ask her what's happened, she walks right out of the uh, the lounge as if nothing has happened and all is well. Yep. And they're like, well, screw this. And they just take off out of the school. Well, not before Casey wipes out pretty spectacularly and Delilah keeps running. Yeah, I had that in my nose, too, that he crashed and burned rather impressively going around the corner. <laughs> He's like, Delilah, wait. And she's like, fuck you. I gotta go. Peace. See you later, Applebox. Shouldn't have smelled me, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Smell you later. And now we get Casey's parents showing up to school with his father being played by Christopher Donald, who is hitting about that peak streak in his career where Chris McDonald was go to guy for professional dick hole. <laughs> Just... yep. Wasn't he in Dead Cop or whatever that movie was? Zombie Cop, something like that. Dead Heat. Dead Heat. That's it. Was he in that? No. But God, I love Dead Is Heat. Joe Piscopo? Yes, it's Joe Piscopo. And I love Dead Heat so much. Oh, it's Joe Pisco and um, the actor from Hair. You always get his name right. Treat Williams. Oh, <laughs> Remo Williams, as Jake would say back in episode three, our underwater episode. Yes. <laughs> it's Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo. And it is one of my favorite kind of schlocky type horrors. It's fantastic. You know, just another note before we move on. At this point in the movie, if you watch it pretty closely in the background, there's signs like pep signs and bumper stickers for the school. And my two favorite, I just have this note here for some reason, so maybe it was in this scene, is Miso Hornet, because the school's <laughs> team is the Hornets. And there's another one on a car which says, honk if you're Hornet. Nice. <laughs> just thought I'd throw that out there because I enjoyed the fact that both of those were in the movie. So yeah, the parents and the cops come back with Casey. One of the cops is played by Dwayne Martin. He's one of the cops that comes up to help him. He's Willie from the famous Flight and Willie two-person team in White Men Can't Jump. Oh, Whenever I see him nice. in movies, all I can see is, tell Aunt B she better have my bean pie or I'm going to kick her ass. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as I saw the cop in this, that was the first thing I thought. And I'm like, why did I think that? And then I looked up why. <laughs> <laughs> my subconscious is better at this game than I am. What I love is they go straight for the closet. Like they wouldn't have moved it. Come on. <laughs> There's no way in hell that thing is still here. Come on. But yeah, they go to the closet. There's nothing in there but a resuscitation doll. Everyone just kind of like looks at Casey's like, ah, what were you thinking? The coach tries to get Casey to join the team again. Yeah, and I love how cheeky the glamour guppies are, the converted people, because actually you know, Principal Drake's trying to get his parents you know, back into the office. He says, oh, no, 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 we'll just go home. And she actually winks at him as he's leaving. Yep. So I do like the sense of humor that these monsters have where it's they're fashionable and cheeky. I love it. Yep. Yeah, they know what's going on. They're not on automation. They're not some background process in people's heads. Like, they are running the show. 
(laughs) And when you know what's going on, they'll let you know they know you know too. (laughs) The invasion of the snarky assholes. Yeah, baby. Yeah, I love the glee they take in their plan, which is going to pay off in the football sequence, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Oh, yes. You're going to be seeing a gif of that a lot on our (laughs) social media feeds. This is also the scene where they convert the cops. They take one into the back room and they just, done. Willie is playing for a different team now. Yep. At which point, Casey's like, let's get the hell out of here. At this point, all the teachers are hot. All the teachers have been converted and have gussied up and are like all cool and and collected and and with it. Casey gets home and he gets immediately grounded by his... I love this scene. So he's getting grounded (laughs) by his dad, who's like tearing his room apart looking for drugs. You know, he's like, clearly you're on drugs. Clearly you're doing something. He takes a book of his... It rips it open. He like rips this book in half for no reason. Kid's like, Dad, that's government property. <laughs> he just rips the spine right off this book. His mom calls out, check the school books. They hide the drugs in the spine of the books. Oh, I saw it on God. Dateline. It was so funny. They ground him. They go, no phone, no internet. They literally grab his boombox out of his room. And then his mom goes, that too. He's like, oh, and they lift his bed and grab his porno. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, champ. No more flogging the bishop. <laughs> so... First off, the discovery of the porno is preceded by the reveal that he has pictures of Delilah pinned up on his wall. Yeah. So, which is like, eh. Second, the porno magazine, there's two of them. We don't really see the bottom one, but the top one is just called boob, singular. (laughs) Which, back to what we were talking about in disturbing behavior, presumably it is a magazine of just a single boob hanging out. (laughs) That gets you the PG-13 rating. (laughs) What I loved about this scene immediately is that his dad rips the book in half and his son goes, dad, that's government property. And they should have stopped right there because that is the most clear evidence that your kid is a narc that you are ever going to get. (laughs) And like you mentioned, Chris McDonald has the line, sorry, pal, no more flogging the bishop. And I really wanted Elijah Wood to call out pitifully, well, can I still wrangle the rook? (laughs) Fight the knight? And then he finally gives up and says, oh, my kid, with my junk, it's more like pummeling the pawn. (laughs) Soon to be prawn with the alien invasion. Oh, yeah, nice. Oh, well done. Nice. (laughs) So this scene, I'm sorry. Episode nine, pummeling the prawn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little embarrassed to say how much time I spent pausing trying to find information about the things on his walls. Mm. He has a very big, prominent poster for the band Cheezer, and I could find nothing. He has got a gig poster for Def Bonham, which I also could find nothing on. But then, like, one second after his parents leave, he sits down at his desk, and on his desk is a copy of Mike Alred's Madman Comics yearbook from 1995. Oh, nice! Yeah, it took me a little while to figure out exactly what Madman issue it was, but I spent the time for you, dear listeners, to tell you that if you want a prop from this movie, Mike Alred's Madman Comics yearbook from 95. And Madman Comics were good. A little crazy, but good. That's all I got. I spent a lot of time looking at the posters in his room and not being able to... Because it's the same in disturbing behaviors that they have these old gig posters or, you know, like shows, you know, local scene shows, posters up. And I can't tell if there's shit that they just made up, if they're from the actual local scene. Because it was in, you know... 96 and 98 7 when these were all filmed and that being pre-internet all this stuff is not on setlist.fm like i would hope it would be and you need to know yeah i i get obsessed about dumb details sometimes but uh yeah i just couldn't find it so if you anybody out there knows anything about cheeser or def bonham we would like (laughs) to know and by we i mean me because i don't think eric and nick care no no, sorry but no (laughs) 
I'll be happy to know you're happy. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, immediately Casey is grounded and tries to sneak out the window. He's just like, I got stuff to do. We're all in danger. I'm going to try and get out of here. But as he's sneaking out, the teachers are waiting for him. It spooks him. He falls, lands on the ground, and is unexpectedly saved by his dad, who catches him doing it and drags him back in the house. Yeah, this is where we get a brief ADR bit where he says, you know, they're out there. And he says, he's not on screen where he says it, but we hear Elijah Wood say, the faculty. So it looks like it was ADR'd in, because this movie was originally called, I think it was The Feelers. It was originally a different script that Kevin Williamson punched up. So it was one of those things, it was like, whatever we land on calling the movie, we'll ADR that in later. It was like, oh, faculty. All right, stick that in. (laughs) He does say the faculty at one point later, but this bit, it's oddly ADR'd into a scene. Again, it's one of those odd bits of ADR, which doesn't seem like it was necessary and feels like one of those, we got to stick the title in somewhere now that we know what the title is. That's interesting. Because it's an awkward scene. Not my favorite in the movie. But like everything else in the movie, it's brought to us by Dan and Springwater, which we see quite clearly... (laughs) As the faculty load up the faculty lounge, just wall to wall with jugs of it, little bottles of it, every single cabinet filled up, and the camera decidedly lands on an empty coffee machine. They are not fans of diuretics, as we will soon find out. Hey, did you guys catch, because they they mentioned it at some point around here in the movie, and I I have the note, but I uh, didn't connect it to anything. The team name that they're playing Friday night in the game? I missed it. The Chongos. Huh. They just say it. I never see it, but they say the Changos. And I looked that up, and the best I could find is the Changos, which is a curdled milk Mexican dessert. Now I wish I saw their team mascot. (laughs) It's another one of those little details that you pick up when you watch these movies way too close that you would really like more information on, like Cheezer and the Changos, man. (laughs) I found Tito and the Tarantula. I feel like I should have been able to find more here, but here we are. If we ever get to interview Robert Rodriguez on this, my questions are going to be stupid and he's going to hate me. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> I am fully prepared for that. After we establish that the faculty have loaded up the lounge with water, we get little bits and pieces of them beginning to further convert the student body. We get <laughs> Professor Tate, who is suddenly very excited to be teaching class for the first time. He said, today's assignment, list all your living relatives. <laughs> living family histories. Is that classic line from the trailer. Like, is this going to be the test? This is the test. (laughs) Every time I see him, all I can think is, I like you. (laughs) I've watched Super Troopers way too much. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, but students are getting called to the principal's office. Students are getting called to the nurse's office for ear exams. Like throughout the day, there are these regular like calls for like about five students at a time. They're being processed. Also, you, you find out that Usher is the new team captain. Yeah. In this scene. And as the day progresses, like more and more percentage of the students just become more and more calm, collected, chill, thirsty, thirsty. And one of the biggest examples of that had to be a fuck you guy, number one, and fuck you girl, number two. <laughs> this couple, this clear pair of a relationship that just should not be together, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, just eating each other's face with their vitriol. And by the end of the day, they're just kind of hand in hand and chill and everything's fine. But not at the same time, because no. there's the scene where Zeke is walking through and the girl is beating on the guy and the guy is just watching them as they walk across the campus. Yep. And she's like, you know, fuck you, just respond. And he's not at all nope. responding. It's actually kind of creepy. Very creepy. This is when Famke Jansen comes up to him, too. Isn't yes, it? this is where we get glamored up Famke Jansen with a decidedly different demeanor as well, who <laughs> begins to dress <laughs> down Zeke with phrases such as, you dickless, drug-induced excuse for a human being. <laughs> really? 
lights into him in this and says, woman, did you just say woman? And just starts tearing into him. And oh my, my only note for this was get him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like this scene. I might have watched this a few times in a row. It's good. Just saying. No, but this, uh, we cut from here to one of the harder parts of the movie for me. Not that it's a bad idea. It's that it turns out to be bullshit and therefore negates everything else they do. (laughs) So it's like Casey confides in Stokely about what's going on. And she says it sounds like pod people. And they're like, well, isn't all fiction based on some truth? No. Well, yeah, that's a huge stretch. (laughs) And she starts talking about how, you know, Robert Heinlein is the original author of stuff like pod people. You know, and they start thinking that maybe aliens are trying to get to us through the fiction. This is a neat concept that aliens have actually invaded us to some degree already and have tweaked our fiction in such a way that when they actually show up, people go, oh, it's bullshit fiction. That's a neat idea. Does not fucking apply to this movie, but it was a neat idea. (laughs) (laughs) But the problem is, from this point forward, whenever they decide that they're going to make some decision based off of facts they don't have, their reference material is fiction, which hurts my brain. Because they're always fucking right. <laughs> it's not okay. But I digress. I, the the ultimate solution to this movie is the one I always get a little stuck on and just decided early on, I don't care. Whatever this movie wants. <laughs> this is also when he makes the X-Files reference and then very shortly after uh, Independence Day reference. Just to let you know just how firmly rooted in the 90s this film is. Yep. <laughs> It also, it bothers me a little bit because it takes Elijah Wood, who's supposedly smart, way too long to connect that we just found a new squid species in the fucking field to the <laughs> fact that there's an alien pod people invasion. <laughs> like for him to get from point A to point B takes a good half hour of this movie. And he's supposed to be smart and I just don't buy it. Well, to be fair, after this conversation, they immediately go looking for the aquarium thing. Right. Stan, Delilah, Stokely, and Casey all catch up together. They're all in cahoots now. And they go look at the Quarian thing, which is now gone. Stan's a hard sell on the alien theory up until, you know, Professor Furlong walks in. Real quick, before we get to that, Zeke and Mary Beth are alone talking about, you know, drugs, shopping from school storage. They kiss. Here are things going on to the great, and that's how they get involved. Yeah, so now our six protagonists are all gathered in the same place, which is the biology classroom. They're looking at the tank. Tank is empty. And now we are visited by a pod-peopled version of John Stewart's character, Mr. Edward Furlong, who <laughs> corners the kids. It quickly becomes apparent that he's been possessed by one of these parasites. Decides that six of them, one of him, is still good odds in his favor <laughs> because he decides to essentially take them all on. <laughs> in his defense. He is super strong, yes. <laughs> he's super strong and he's got a killer weapon, which is like, a bunch of shit running through his body. Yes. <laughs> he is not ready for them, though. He locks the door. I love this scene. This is impressive. So Zeke outs the alien faculty theory to him. The professor closes the door and locks it. Zeke starts to leave. The professor just throws him down. And Zeke immediately goes, oh, yeah, fuck you. He jumps up and rips the paper cutter blade off the <laughs> device and goes after him. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> that escalated quickly. <laughs> That was one of my favorite shots of the film because it's filmed in super slow motion of him just reeling this paper cutter back. As you can see, the screw that held it on goes flying off. It's like they're implying one of two things. Either they want a hero shot for Josh Hartnett so everyone in the audience knows he's super badass or the school is that old and shitty that with the slightest effort, (laughs) this thing just fell apart. 
Why not both? <laughs> you remember earlier in the movie when Robert Patrick stabs the principal with a pencil and says, I always wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. This was for that for me. I always wanted ah. to do that with a paper slicer. <laughs> Just go to town. I used to have to use one of those all the time. And uh, yeah. The idea of ripping it off and using it as a sword to fight aliens. If I had seen this movie when I was just a bit younger, would have been an obsessive dream of mine. <laughs> so, yeah, he ends up cutting off the professor's fingers on one hand with the blade. They all go wormy. His actual fingers grow the familiar cilia kind of tentacles that come out going for Zeke when he gets a pen to the eye with the drugs, which appear to have a strong adverse reaction to the converted. And he just kind of starts bubbling and dies on the floor. Now, I assume this is when Delilah gets infected. That would be a fair guess. Probably, yeah. This is my best guess, because I was thinking about That it. would make a lot of sense. The last time I watched is actually when it happens. And there's a scene where Mary Beth essentially pulls Delilah back behind the tank mm-hmm. while everybody's fighting, and they kind of blink out of screen for a minute. But there's a scene where nobody would be looking at them briefly. Mm-hmm. It makes total sense that it could have happened. Absolutely. I like this film. This film has some leaps of logic and such but for the whole it's pretty tight yeah it's just got one enormous gigantic titanic leap of logic that doesn't make (laughs) much sense at the heart of a lot of it but you you just don't care is the problem the rest of it's so good you you just kind of go whatever and move on (laughs) yeah so they have now killed eddie furlong with the pen to the eye that he prophetically mentions in one of his first lines in the film is why don't i just stick a pen in my eye and that's how he goes out although he's not actually dead uh he is that's just, so ridiculous <laughs> that's so ridiculous he's just not doing well i swear to god this is just john stewart going i got this great idea this will be fun and they're like yeah let's do it <laughs> but it is he's right though it's funny and therefore it's hard for me to complain about so Cleodefall has the great line, isn't this when somebody says, let's get the fuck out of here? And Stan goes, let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and they go to the door and they decide to walk slowly out to, they never actually say they're going to go to Zeke's car, but that's what they all seem to psychically know they're going to do. And you get this great kind of slow motion shot of them walking through these crowds of people. Other than Zeke, do we know any of the other ones having a car? We have no details along those lines. I know Casey is a bus kid. I know he got dropped off by his dad at one time. I think most of them don't have cars. I think they, I don't think they have a choice. You would have to assume that Stan has a car. I mean, he's the captain of the football team. One could argue. That kind of kid always had a car. <laughs> yeah, so they go, and it's one of my favorite scenes, because I like slow motion, heavy-handed bullshit in science fiction and horror. And, you know, they kind of very, not too slow, but slow enough walk through this crowd and they see people looking at him and there's this sound in the background of people. Almost everyone. You know, and it's the sound of this entire school talking about them as they walk past. And you just, you catch, not a lot, but you catch their names being said a lot. Mm -hmm. And then they get to the car and the football team comes up and says, hey, Stan, why don't you come play with us? And Zeke tells him to get the fuck in the car. And I forget what Stan says there. It's like, ah, I'm good, guys, and gets in the car and they drive away. Yeah, they drive to Zeke's place because in addition to a 1970 Pontiac GTO, he also has an old-timey Frankenstein laboratory. Yes! In modern terms, this is a meth lab. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The way there is starting to get creepy, too, because there are cop blockades where they're clearly checking cars and infecting people as they go through. The radio stations have stopped. No, there's not a single working station. Like, the town is easily, like, halfway infected at this point. It, It has become uncontainable. 
they realize they are in a dire situation. At which point they get to what I call the Scooby Shack of Zeke's very big house. <laughs> the chem set in the garage. <laughs> His parents having been established as being in Europe, which is why he has drugs and a gun lying around. Yeah, it's they're they're not subtle with the he, he's an unloved kid who's abandoned and, and not taken care of, but smart and on his own. Famke Jansen makes sure that everybody knows that quite well. Yes. You know? <laughs> Did she call him Mommy's Little Bastard or something? Or yeah. Mommy's Little Mistake? <laughs> Mommy's Little Mistake. So in this scene, they're in this lab and they decide because Casey has grabbed one of the aliens and they take a look at it under a microscope, which they do a lot, but never really kind of get into why other than it looks sciencey and smart. Yes. <laughs> he then infects his little rat buddy with it and then breaks the little rat buddy's neck to see what it does inside. And that's how they figure out that they're basically puppet masters yep. inside. And they have this scene where, you know, anybody could be one. We got to run and they determine that they can't run because they'll never outrun it. And this is where they come up with the giant master leap, possible leap of logic in this movie. Yeah, They turn to Stokely as the expert. You read the science fiction in horror. You know what's going on. Tell us, oh, great sage, what the central thing here is. Speak to us, <laughs> prophet of Heinlein. Yep. And she says, if you kill the leader, then... They'll all die. And, and then she said, well, you know, what'll happen to everybody? She said, they'll be fine. And it's one of those that like, <laughs> how the hell do you know that? <laughs> you just, you kind of think about it for a second. And you're like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. But by then you're already off to, we're going to do drugs to determine whether we're human or not. <laughs> <laughs> Which, that and not you're like, oh, that makes sense. I don't give a shit. Let's go. You know, the doing the drugs thing is a test made sense. Yeah. I enjoyed this. Yeah, I, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. This is my favorite scene in the movie. I enjoyed that their variation on the thing's blood test sequences. Let's all do drugs! <laughs> <laughs> it ends the same way as the thing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Except nobody says they don't want to be tied to the fucking couch anymore. <laughs> and Casey goes, why do I have to go first? And Zeke has the great line, I don't know, man, it's your birthright. Just take it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I like that line so much, but I do. It's not the best line in the scene because the best line in the movie is coming up. So Casey takes it, you know, when you take it by popping off the, the, the bottoms of these pens and then snorting this, which we know is mostly caffeine and other stuff from around the house. Filler. Yeah, probably baking soda. You know, and then in each successive turn, everybody says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then they do that. So Stan <laughs> is next. But before that, Casey starts laughing and Stan goes and grabs the gun and points it at him. And says, why is he, you know, what's going on? To which Zeke has the line of the movie. He's tweaking, man. Let him fucking tweak. <laughs> I think this line to myself, no lie, probably about once a week. I never say it out loud. Because the people around me who have seen this movie are also on this podcast. <laughs> and most people, if you say he's tweaking, man, let him fucking tweak, are not going to know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I think it all the time. <laughs> this is in my mental vocabulary just as firmly as George Carlin and Simpsons lines. Nice. Seasons one through ten. And yeah, I don't know why I love this line. It's stupid, but it's just so perfect. And I love everything about it. Is this it. something you say to your cats, like Beep Beep Richie from It? Yeah! I, I have absolutely said that to my cats. <laughs> you bust out the catnip for the cats. And he's tweaking, man, just let him tweak! <laughs> I, I don't say Beep Beep Richie quite as much to Monty, because I had to explain to Jen where that's from, and she didn't care for me saying that <laughs> to the cat a lot. But I still think it. 
So I just love this line. I love oh, yeah. this scene. So he takes it. He tweaks. Stan takes it. He starts giggling. Cleo Duvall. Stokely takes it next, I believe. Yeah. Then uh, Mary Beth and Delilah, the last to go. Oh, the last two. Some Stokely and Zeke do it. Somebody. Yeah. And they decide to go together. But, you know, just as Mary Beth goes, Delilah pushes back, gets thrown against the wall. She get, you see the slugs underneath her face. They're like, ah, oh, crap. She's infected. She doesn't seem to know what's going on and then kind of snaps into it and knows what's going on. So it's almost like she didn't know she was infected until she snorted some of it and then realized it. And then they took her over or something. It's, it's a little bit weird in the, the order of operations for her. I think the things before that was her acting like when she's acting like she knows what the hell's going on at that point. She's like, fuck it. You know, the game is over. <laughs> this is me. And then she runs outside. But while she's running, they try to shoot her in the damn head. <laughs> They've just discussed, you know, if we kill the master, everyone who's currently infected will come back. And they're trying to shoot their friend in the fucking head. <laughs> it's like, and no. she goes outside to the waiting cab. <laughs> Which we saw pull up earlier. You saw it pull up earlier, but you still don't know why it's there. She never calls one. They don't have cell phones. They, maybe they can communicate psychically, but... It might be a hive mind effect. Except if they could communicate psychically, they would be more aware of the people around them, you'd think. Maybe. There would be less need for them to exposit to each other, like Casey and Delilah peer in on when they're in the closet sharing information about nah, shit true. not taking. So, yeah, true. so we do establish that they have to share information. I get, mostly, I think it's the movie playing fast and loose, which is fine, because the execution of the movie is fast and loose, and it's fun. Yep. Yeah, look, I'm not complaining about details, as we've oh, determined. Yeah, yeah. I could give a shit. It's just one of those things. Like, is that a cab? When did you? You know what? Fuck it. <laughs> cab, sure. That's the random cab that hangs out in front of Zeke's house. <laughs> I then love they're like, all right, well, now it's our obligation to take out the queen. And then we get everyone back. Yeah, it's like, oh, where's she going to be? Well, the only place she can be. It's Friday night. The football game. Now like, we get my favorite sequence of the movie. This is hilarious. And well, then they determine that it's got to be the principal because the principal's in charge. Yes. Uh-huh. And it's the most teenage logic <laughs> there is. And I love it. Yeah. So they head back to the school where the football game is underway. This is great. This is this is so good. They establish <laughs> at the opening of the movie, like we mentioned, that Every other department is either getting no additional funds or is having funds deducted from them. No new equipment, no new anything. It's all getting routed to the football team, which we then see in action because the football game has constant pyrotechnics. When we first see it, it's douche. Multiple times, pyro goes off in the end zones. And I just really wanted to see the whole game where it was like, ladies and gentlemen, the opposing team has called a timeout. (laughs) and it's all in slow motion set to another brick in the wall yes as this football team absolutely destroys the visiting team and every time they brutalize a member of this team and knock them prone they then infect infect them. them with one of these parasites but they also cut to Coach Patrick, yes, who is making, he's just mugging for the camera, and it's when the guy gets clotheslined, it's just he just leans back and goes whoa, and I I love it, and you, dear listener, will see this gif as I said a, a lot. lot. <laughs> I've been seeing it a lot. <laughs> Jake had been dropping this particular gif multiple times in chat leading up to this recording, so many times. So when I finally got around to watching the movie, I was very excited to get to that shot. And in its amazing shot, it's a payoff. It is preceded by Usher hitting the most impressive Stan Hansen lariat 
I have seen in a movie. <laughs> just clothesline in the hell out of this. And the kid takes a Rikishi bump from it where he spins <laughs> in air and rotates as he hits. And this is prefaced by the school's mascot, which is a hornet pumping up the crowd. And we can hear the audio coming from the mascot, which is kill, kill. <laughs> <laughs> and they later hold up signs that say kill, kill, kill. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It also makes me wonder who would win in a football game, the Hornets from the faculty or the Blue Ribbons from Disturbing Behavior. Ooh. Well, I think it would have to be the Hornets because they would slowly take over the Blue Ribbon team. Uh, yeah. Well, but you're assuming that the Hornets could take over the Blue Ribbons with those implants in there that could fight the the control of the aliens. Well, no, I don't think it would fight it. I think it would either A, the, the aliens would win, or B, they would short the fuck out and it just fall over and be out the rest of the game. So either either way, good. we know the Chongos aren't winning. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the Chongos are having a bad day. So yeah, the Scooby team gets to the school and they lock eyes with the principal and Miss Olsen, and they lure her back into the gym where they've assembled. And as she approaches, they capture her, tie her up, and Zeke shoots her in the damn head. <laughs> Blam! She does a pretty good job of convincing you that she is not taken over. I mean, you know she's taken over. But she gives you at least doubt. Like, for a second, you're like, oh, she's, that's pretty convincing. <laughs> and then, boom! And she just kind of lays down, like, oh, okay. And then they're about to stab her with the drugs when she just stands up. And parasites <laughs> just start leaving her body. And they're like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> And they stab her with a pencil, and then Mary Beth hits her with all of they have left. Yeah, they, they have it, like, in a jar. They, they've collected their stash into a single jar, and she just dumps the whole thing on her. Which, lucky for them, catches all the slugs that were starting to come out. So she just melts into a pile on the ground. And they're like, hey, uh, that work? <laughs> I guess we did it. And they send Stan out with one of their last two doses they have to go check on it. Stokely gives him a kiss goodbye, just in case. And, you know, that relationship's been growing since the beginning of the movie. Stan finds the coach in one of the neatest scenes Yeah, where like just the coach and the whole team are just standing in the rain, drinking it up. The alien inside has come so close to the surface to get to this water that you can like when the, when the lightning flashes, you can see it through the skin. Yeah. It's become that it's, it's a nice scene. Yeah. In the eight or nine or so minutes from Stokely and Stan coming to the gym with the principal following them, all the town has left and it has started storming. Yes. <laughs> that is a quick jump. There's definitely a, a time issue there. The stands are 100% empty. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is gone. There's a brief shot of people leaving the stands, but yeah, it's just empty <laughs> as soon as they go out to confirm that the football I've team I've never is... seen a stadium empty that fast. Yeah. But I forgive it because it's a gorgeous shot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, again, I might point this stuff out, but I do not give one solitary shit about any of it. I love everything in this movie the way it is. There's a lot of things that are inconvenient but could have been easily fixed if they had the time. Like, they could have drugged that time out. They could have had Delilah give a wink to somebody to have a car follow or something. You know, there are things that are fixable. These are not movie-breaking logic problems. No. They're just, oh, it's a little sloppy, but on the whole, it's still pretty as fuck, and I like what they're doing with it. Yeah, so Stan goes out, sees the football team, and then eventually he comes back, and they don't let him in immediately. He's like, oh, crap, they're still aliens. Let me in, let me in. They're like, well, we, how do we know you're, you're not converted? He goes, I'm not. He goes, here, take this drug. They give him the last drug. He just pours it out on, this, on the road right there. Like, ah, oh, crap. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. And then he goes into a spiel about how, you know, there's no fear. 
There's no pain and you'll be beautiful. You know, there'll be no problems or worries. And I want you, you know, it's. And you will be beautiful and you will because they have amazing fashion sense as we've established. Absolutely. Alien eye for the straight guy. <laughs> yeah. So then they come back in and they determine that Zeke may have some scat left in his trunk. So Zeke and Casey go out and Casey finds out very quickly that he is the decoy. Yes, he's, <laughs> he does indeed have the opportunity to run while being chased, as he set up earlier in the film, which is him being chased, and sets up a sequence that I really like the construction of, which is where he gets cornered on the bus by a possessed Delilah, you know, who is again trying to say, you know, lure him in. And as she's doing this, and they're stuck in these very cramped confines of this school bus, you know, just standing in the center aisle, the football team is gathering around the outside, pounding on the outside. So you just start to see this very zombie-like crowd clamoring on the outside of it. I was like, oh, that's pretty well constructed. That's good. As long as you don't think about why Delilah was on the bus in the first place. Correct. <laughs> How convenient. So he then escapes her by climbing out the top of the bus and running away. But while that's going on, Zeke is confronted at his car by possessed Famke Jansen. In probably one of the other more overtly horror-esque scenes in the film. Yes, because first she's flirting with him, and then they end up both in the car fighting. Like they're just physically fighting. He's trying to keep her off of him. He's doing his best to like just get away from her. He puts his seatbelt on and crashes into the bus with this glorious large explosion, which you'll never get in <laughs> real life. <laughs> but it was nice. <laughs> and that's when he sees that the car accident has beheaded her, and her damn head has grown tentacles and is like crawling towards her confused body yep. <laughs> he looks at this for a moment and just goes fuck, fuck this, this. <laughs> and goes back inside but you know now he has the drugs and now all they do is try to figure out who the master alien is and he makes casey take the drug because he comes back and says, look i went away for five minutes everybody's fucking alien you're taking it <laughs> yeah and this is where we get the big reveal that this entire time the puppet master of this was the monster from Deep Rising. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly, but there's kind of a similarity in design there. Not nearly True. as big, but my soul was like, but hey, I like Deep it. Rising monster! <laughs> so Stokely and Mary Beth are alone, and they're talking about you know the master alien, and you know in the end of the invasion uh, of the body snatchers that the aliens win, and Mary Beth asks if Stokely is tired of being something she's not. At which point she starts growing goddamn tentacles and turns into the queen beastie. Yep. Starts chasing Stokely and Casey around. She gets Stokely, unfortunately, but Casey, quote unquote, saves her. She's in the pool and there's the weirdly cut scene where the monster is coming at her and then Casey gets her out of the pool. Oh, the pool scene was good because the practical effects of it going into the water was neat. It's where you really first see the monster because she dives in. Yep. And... They're swimming, and then the monster just explodes out of the water. Yep. And then Casey grabs her and pulls her out of the way, which, you know, I, again, beautiful and whatnot. I just, I think that thing was damn fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the timing of the cuts is rather awkward. Yes. But, you know, he saves her. And then there's a nice transition of her, like, converting back into a human. In shadow. Like, you see yep. it in shadow. And it's one of my favorite shots in the film. Yes. Then she walks in all naked and stuff. Yeah, she walks through the locker room. So in, in down the center of the frame, you see her human form in shadow. But on the outer edges of the frame, you see these tendrils. And so you don't actually see the tendrils. You just see the shadow they cast over the tops of the yeah. lockers and everything. So again, it's a pretty fun shot composition. Yeah, it's pretty. It's very pretty. 
And she gives a little speech about, you know, her home planet and why they're here and why everything's better if she they just let her take over. And then Zeke comes in. <laughs> I like that. Mary Beth for a hot second actually tries to say it's Stokely. <laughs> Even though she's standing there buck ass naked. She's yes. Like, ah, I tried. <laughs> and she goes, Why are you naked? <laughs> and I forget what exactly saw, but I guess we have to do this the hard way or yeah. something. <laughs> it's like, oh, all right. <laughs> Zeke gets knocked unconscious and Stokely turns out to be infected and gets locked into the the security cage. Mm -hmm. And finally, Casey runs out of the locker room with the monster in tow and he goes to the gym and he goes behind the bleachers, hits the button to make them pull in and runs behind them and the monster follows him. He flies through and finally, right at the end as it's about to get him, it all closes and squishes her. And then he stabs her in the eye with the scat that he's got left. Guaranteed to jack you up. Bow. And just as he's about to get infected. Yes. And all it takes for this enormous monster is a very small amount of this diuretic. Okay. <laughs> he, he gave her three doses. It was three doses. Was it three? Not, yeah, still not much. <laughs> still, still not enough. But Three thimbles full. <laughs> I feel like they felt the same way you did. They're like, one seems little. Like, well, let's make it three. Uh, uh, I mean... Okay. <laughs> she was already pinned by the locker rooms. And if you were in a high school that had those lockers, you were oh, told yeah. often they would that they you. would kill you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> they look like they would kill you. Yeah. Although just before that happens, there's a scene where she's chasing, uh, I think it's Casey through the locker room. And she's just like casually throwing lockers left and right in her wake. Yep. That was a fun scene. This whole sequence is well shot. Yeah. It's just beautiful. Like it's fun to watch. It's exciting horror movie, sci-fi stuff. And it, there's nothing in it that feels awkward or like bad special effects. It all feels lived in and inhabited. I might go so far as to say it's exquisite. <laughs> <laughs> we got to end the episode early. Nick's possessed. <laughs> so, yeah, we cut to uh, one month later. Everyone is normal. Some faculty members are missing. <laughs> they didn't survive the encounter. Zeke is playing football now. And smoking during just, practice. Yeah, he's apparently decided to self-actualize. And it's implied dating Famke Jansen. Yes. Yeah. She's like in the crowd. Like the funny thing I like was she had a ribbon around her neck to clearly cover up where she had to reattach to her body. <laughs> yes. <laughs> one of two movies on this episode where one of the villains has a blue ribbon around their neck at the end. Where she's clearly cheering him on. And it's supposed to be okay. It's like, well, you know, he should technically be a... A freshman at college, he so got right, held back right here, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's cool. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm almost entirely certain the reason they establish he's held back a year is for this. One hundred percent, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> he is definitely eighteen. That's all we're gonna say. <laughs> it's still creepy. Yes. Oh God, yeah. But there are news crews everywhere because everyone wants in on the story. Because no matter what story you're gonna believe, the town did go fug nuts for at least a couple days. And you got Stan and Stokely together now. And Stokely is not gothy anymore. I know. Anymore. What the she's, fuck she's is that? Cleaned up and pretty. Yeah. Every message is horrible. Yes. That Every message is me. horrible. You know, her ending up with Stan was fine by me. You know, Stan wanting to change himself. Her like willing to like have feelings for someone outside of her, you know, niche. That I'm okay with. But the fact that she changed who she was for him, I'd be like, ah, that's. Yeah, right. Everything's awful here. The character who spent the whole movie being ridiculed by Delilah in a very casually homophobic way, the whole movie, and the movie ends with her changing her appearance. It was like, 
Oh, bad <sighs> message. It's just awful. Much like Zeke being on the football team, despite being the iconoclast, and yep. you know he's joining in with the Everyday Gang, and Casey is the editor in chief of the newspaper, and he is with Delilah, and yep. now kind of an asshole, and he's not the one getting the crotch shot on the flagpole anymore. <laughs> You know, Casey finding his own after saving the day, I'm kind of fine with. You know, Casey's and Delilah were flirting previously. Them together, I'm okay with. But you're right. He is kind of now like a douchebag. Like, he's just kind of... Well, it's it's very clear. It's that they fought this whole thing to be outsiders, to be against fitting in with this thing that makes everybody homogenous. And the way that they win is by fitting in. Yes. Yep. After doing a bunch of drugs because drugs save the day. <laughs> drugs literally win in this movie. So the message is do drugs, become popular. Speaking of movies where drugs save the day, it totally reminded me of Take Me Home Tonight with Topher Grace. Oh, <laughs> you ever nice. see that? Yes. I love I have, that goddamn movie. Drugs do save the day. It's, it's like you know, the entire moral of that story is, you know, cocaine will save you and your life and make things better. <laughs> <laughs> it's good there's a lot of 90s drug movies that were unabashedly pro-drug oh yeah you know starting with dazed and confused and moving on down <laughs> <laughs> but this one being a the teen movie you know like the message you get from this is don't conform conform but with drugs <laughs> <laughs> don't conform until you've done your drugs and dealt with your demons then you can conform <laughs> But yeah, so that's basically the movie until you get to the credits where you actually get a scene of Jon Stewart now as Professor Furlong with a goddamn eye patch and his missing fingers bandaged up. I'm like, what the hell is this? No, we have established that you can survive this conversion, but I really got a strong feeling that if you got hit with the drugs, you didn't come back. Like the damage was irreparable. So that clashed with my logic. But it didn't stop the fact that it was hilarious to see him there all jacked up going, hey, how y'all doing? <laughs> yeah, it's a cute end credit stinger. It's, it's cute. It was totally his idea. It had to be his idea. <laughs> yeah. And that's the faculty. One of my favorites. It is absolutely one of my favorites. It's ridiculous. It's over the top, but it's got great music. Everybody is just a lot of fun in it. The message is terrible terrible message honestly my only complaint is we don't get enough piper laurie after they start doing the throwdown at the end yeah like you see her at the football stands and then never again they should have brought her back that would have been a better movie yeah i wish i'd like to get like a scream factory whatever anniversary edition of this with you know director's commentary and all that kind of stuff i don't know if it exists but it'd be cool i'd love no, to see deleted I, scenes i don't from think this. there's a special edition of this i assume it's hung up with the because of the studio that made it so i couldn't find any deleted scenes online i found some outtakes which were fun but you know just that but yeah i love everything about this movie irrationally so yep <laughs> it's just a great movie <laughs> And doing a deep dive on it just made me like it more yep. now that I know all this stuff about the music. And, you know, it's got this connection to Jesse Mallon, you know, listed as Travis Bickle in the credits. I mean, it's I don't want to say a perfect movie because you got to have the right mindset for something like this. But <laughs> for some people, it's a perfect film. Yeah. Like, I love this and I love disturbing behavior. And the other two movies I could take or leave. They were fine ish. Being a horror connoisseur, I'm glad I've seen the other two movies. You know, and if you're into horror as a genre and it's your thing, you might want to check them out. But if you're just looking for some good movies, you definitely want to go with Disturbing Behavior or The Faculty. They're quality. 
Yeah, I don't know if I'd say they're good movies. They're great. Go to hell. <laughs> they're incredibly entertaining films. Disturbing Behavior is not a good movie. I it's just it. an entertaining movie. It had some serious flaws, but it was good. I would be willing to bet that David Nutter's cut would be a good movie. Oh, I bet that'd be fantastic. That'd be a great movie. And The Faculty is just a straight-up good movie. It just has fun. It knows what it is and has fun being what it is. It's great. It doesn't try to be anything else. You know, it's a direct ripoff of, like, what if The Breakfast Club was in the 90s with aliens? <laughs> you know? Overall, I had the most fun with The Faculty. Yep. I don't love it, but I do like it, and it's the one I generally liked the most. I think... Kind of like you just mentioned, I think Disturbing Behavior had the most missed potential. Mm -hmm. I think a director's cut of that could have been good. And I think a completely ground up version of the script that was a bit tighter could have actually probably been pretty close to great. Faculty of all the movies have various things, obviously, that in the intervening years have aged poorly. Faculty has it a little bit more than most, where it leans into the very with some of the morality stuff at the end and the casual homophobic statements are more frequent in this than they are in some of the other movies around this time. True. So there's just bits and pieces. Where, I mean, Some of that is prevalent in, in all of these movies, but it's kind of the most prevalent in faculty. Yeah. And part of that, because everybody in the faculty is awful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like nobody is a particularly nice kid or a hero or anybody you would root for outside of a movie exactly like this. Like any one of the six main characters in say, I don't know, Dawson's Creek. You're going to root against them. <laughs> the modern version of this would be Riverdale. Yeah, pretty much. And to that effect, one of the areas where faculty succeeds is in the casting. It's very well cast. It's Perfectly yeah, cast. The kids are quite good in this. And this is another one similar to what I said about Urban Legend, where it's, but in a better way, where the execution of this is so much fun to watch. Mm -hmm. Where it's just, you know, so extreme. It has the, you know, really fun in its construction, but it does these really deliberately over the top dramatic and throwback horror cues. Like there's a sequence with Piper Laurie where she's trying to get one of the students' attention, and it just does these four rapid fire close ups into her face. Oh, the smash yeah, cuts. Yeah, it's just yeah. dum 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 dum. <laughs> four cuts right in a row, just each one closing in on her face, and each one has a music stinger of dun 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 dun. So just these little over the top bits. So it this was overall the most fun to watch. It also it delights in telling you what it is. Like uh, Sean Hatosi has that line: "I'm not an alien. I'm discontent." Yeah. <laughs> just in case you didn't get it by that point, you know. And disturbing behavior does a little bit of that too, where it kind of tells you what it is, but it's trying so hard to be more than it is, it gets jumbled up. And yeah, I know what you did. Last Summer is a good slasher movie that is just too self-serious. And I just think Urban Legend was kind of boring, but at least it has fun with itself. Urban Legend has moments. It has moments. Well, one way or the other, we hope you had fun listening to this episode, which is almost assuredly going to be quite hefty. Yeah, we went, we went pretty long this time. I guess we always go long. So We are chatty bitches. <laughs> we're trying to give you as much content as we can especially while everybody's a little bit locked down we're doing a public service but you know we have a lot of fun and we hope you have a lot of fun listening and we'll also be back in two weeks with our bonus episode on the craft which i'm really looking forward to haven't seen it so i'm really looking forward to digging into that one. Oh, you haven't seen it I haven't seen it oh i'm looking forward to this yeah part of the reason i'm so excited to do it was i'm going in cold on this that's one. fantastic i've seen it but i i remember almost nothing about it and it was another one of those movies, when I saw it, I was perhaps tweaking, man. <laughs>
This explains so much about you. <laughs> telling you, man, the 90s were a wild time. Tweak, tweak, pass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I guess we ought to wrap it up then, huh? Good times, any. Yeah, so that'll do it for us for now. So we'll see you in a couple weeks with our craft bonus episode. In the meantime, this is Eric signing off and telling everybody, do good things, lunch boy. <laughs> this is Nick Leamy saying, hey, teacher. Leave them kids alone. (laughs) And this is Jacob saying he's tweaking, man. Let him fucking tweak. (laughs) Good night, everybody. See ya. Good night.